What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 40 of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 40. National and Domestic. England has been in a dreadful state for some weeks. Lord Coodle would go out, Sir Thomas Doodle wouldn't come in, and there being nobody in Great Britain to speak of, except Coodle and Doodle, there has been no government. It is a mercy that the hostile meeting between those two great men, which at one time seemed inevitable, did not come off, because if both pistols had taken effect, and Coodle and Doodle had killed each other, it is to be presumed that England must have waited to be governed until young Coodle and young Doodle, now in frocks and long stockings, were grown up. This stupendous national calamity, however, was averted by Lord Coodle's making the timely discovery that if in the heat of debate he had said that he scorned and despised the whole ignoble career of Sir Thomas Doodle, he had merely meant to say that party differences should never induce him to withhold from it the tribute of his warmest admiration, while it as opportunely turned out, on the other hand, that Sir Thomas Doodle had in his own bosom expressly booked Lord Coodle to go down to posterity as the mirror of virtue and honour. Still, England has been some weeks in the dismal strait of having no pilot, as was well observed by Sir Lester Dudlock, to weather the storm and the marvellous part of the matter is that England has not appeared to care very much about it, but has gone on eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage as the old world did in the days before the flood. But Coodle knew the danger, and Doodle knew the danger, and all their followers and hangers-on had the clearest possible perception of the danger. At last Sir Thomas Doodle has not only condescended to come in, but has done it handsomely, bringing in with him all his nephews, all his male cousins, and all his brothers-in-law, so there is hope for the old ship yet. Doodle has found that he must throw himself upon the country, chiefly in the form of sovereigns and beer. In this metamorphosed state he is available in a good many places simultaneously, and can throw himself upon a considerable portion of the country at one time. Britannia, being much occupied in pocketing Doodle, in the form of sovereigns, and swallowing Doodle in the form of beer, and in swearing herself black in the face that she does neither, plainly to the advancement of her glory and morality. The London season comes to a sudden end, through all the Doodleites and Coodleites dispersing to assist Britannia in those religious exercises. Hence Mrs. Rouncewell, housekeeper at Chesney Wold, foresees 
though no instructions have yet come down, that the family may shortly be expected, together with a pretty large accession of cousins and others who can in any way assist the great constitutional work. And hence the stately old dame, taking time by the forelock, leads him up and down the staircases, and along the galleries and passages, and through the rooms, to witness before he grows any older that everything is ready, that floors are rubbed bright, carpets spread, curtains shaked out, beds puffed and patted, still room and kitchen cleared for action, all things prepared as beseems the deadlock dignity. This present summer evening, as the sun goes down, the preparations are complete. Dreary and solemn the old house looks, with so many appliances of habitation, and with no inhabitants except the pictured forms upon the walls. So did these come and go. A deadlock in possession might have ruminated passing along. So did they see this gallery, hushed and quiet, as I see it now. So think, as I think, of the gap that they would make in this domain when they were gone, so find it, as I find it, difficult to believe that it could be without them, so pass from my world, as I pass from theirs, now closing the reverberating door, so leave no blank to miss them, and so die. Through some of the fiery windows, beautiful from without, and set, at this sunset hour, not in dull grey stone, but in a glorious house of gold, the light excluded at other windows, pours in rich, lavish, overflowing, like the summer plenty in the land. Then do the frozen deadlocks thaw. Strange movements come upon their features, as the shadows of leaves play there. A dense justice in a corner is beguiled into a wink. A staring baronet, with a truncheon, gets a dimple in his chin. Down into the bosom of a stony shepherdess there steals a fleck of light and warmth that would have done it good a hundred years ago. One ancestress of Volumnia, in high-heeled shoes, very like her, casting the shadow of that virgin event before her full two centuries, shoots out into a halo, and becomes a saint. A maid of honour of the court of Charles the Second, with large round eyes, and other charms to correspond, seems to bathe in glowing water, and it ripples as it glows. But the fire of the sun is dying. Even now the floor is dusky, and shadow slowly mounts the walls, bringing the deadlocks down like age and death. And now, upon my lady's picture over the great chimney-piece, a weird shade falls from some old tree that turns it pale, and flutters it, and looks as if a great arm held a veil or hood, watching an opportunity to draw it over her. Higher and darker rises shadow on the wall, now a red gloom on the ceiling, now the fire is out. All that prospect, which from the terrace looked so near, has moved solemnly away and changed. Not the first, nor the last of beautiful things that look so near, and will so change, into a distant phantom. Light mists arise, and the dew falls, and all the sweet scents in the garden are heavy in the air. Now the woods settle into great masses, as if they were each one profound tree, and now the moon rises to separate them, and to glimmer here and there in horizontal lines between their stems, and to make the avenue a pavement of light among high cathedral arches fantastically broken. Now the moon is high, and the great house, needing habitation more than ever, is like a body without life. Now it is even awful, stealing through it, to think of the live people who have slept in the solitary bedrooms, to say nothing of the dead. Now is the time for shadow, 
when every corner is a cavern, and every downward step a pit, when the stained-glass is reflected in pale and faded hues upon the floors, when anything and everything can be made of the heavy staircase beams, excepting their own proper shapes, when the armour has dull lights upon it, not easily to be distinguished from stealthy movement, and when barred helmets are frightfully suggestive of heads inside. But of all the shadows in Chesney Wold, the shadow in the long drawing-room, upon my lady's picture, is the first to come, the last to be disturbed. At this hour, and by this light, it changes into threatening hands raised up, and menacing the handsome face, with every breath that stirs. "'She's not well, ma'am,' says a groom in Mrs. Rouncewell's audience-chamber. "'My lady not well? What's the matter?' "'Why, my lady's been but poorly, ma'am, since she was last here. "'I don't mean with the family, ma'am, but when she was here as a bird of passage, like. "'My lady's not been out much for her, and has kept her room a good deal.' "'Chesney Wold, Thomas,' rejoins the housekeeper with proud complacency, "'will set my lady up. "'Is no finer air, and no healthier soil in the world.' Thomas may have had his own personal opinions on this subject, probably hints them in his manner of smoothing his sleek head from the nape of his neck to his temples, but he forbears to express them further, and retires to the servants' hall to regale on cold meat-pie and ale. This groom is the pilot-fish before the nobler shark. Next evening down come Sir Leicester and my lady with their largest retinue, and down come the cousins and others from all points of the compass. Thenceforth, for some weeks, backward and forward, rush mysterious men with no names, who fly about all those particular parts of the country on which Doodle is at present throwing himself in an auriferous and malty shower, but who are merely persons of a restless disposition, and never do anything anywhere. On these national occasions, Sir Leicester finds the cousins useful. A better man than the Honourable Bob Stables, to meet the hunt at dinner, there could not possibly be. Better got-up gentlemen than the other cousins to ride over to polling booths and hustings here and there, and show themselves on the side of England. It would be hard to find. Volumnia is a little dim, but she is of the true descent, and there are many who appreciate her sprightly conversation, her French conundrums, so old as to have been in the cycles of time, almost new again. The honour of taking the fair deadlock in to dinner, or even the privilege of her hand in the dance— on these national occasions, dancing may be a patriotic service, and Volumnia is constantly seen hopping about for the good of an ungrateful and unpensioning country. My lady takes no great pains to entertain the numerous guests, and being still unwell, rarely appears until late in the day. But at all the dismal dinners, leaden lunches, basilisk balls, and other melancholy pageants, a mere appearance is a relief. As to Sir Leicester, he conceives it utterly impossible that anything can be wanting, in any direction, by any one who has the good fortune to be received under that roof, and in a state of sublime satisfaction he moves among the company a magnificent refrigerator. Daily the cousins trot through dust, and canter over roadside turf, away to hustings and polling-booths, with leather-gloves and hunting-whips for the counties, and kid-gloves and riding-canes for the boroughs, and daily bring back reports, on which Sir Leicester holds forth after dinner. 
Daily the restless men, who have no occupation in life, present the appearance of being rather busy. Daily Volumnia has a little cousinly talk with Sir Leicester on the state of the nation, from which Sir Leicester is disposed to conclude that Volumnia is a more reflecting woman than he had thought her. "'How are we getting on?' says Miss Volumnia, clasping her hands. "'Are we safe?' The mighty business is nearly over by this time, and Doodle will throw himself off the country in a few days more. Sir Leicester has just appeared in the long drawing-room after dinner, a bright particular star surrounded by clouds of cousins. "'Volumnia,' replies Sir Leicester, who has a list in his hand, "'we are doing tolerably—only tolerably.' Although it is summer weather, Sir Leicester always has his own particular fire in the evening. He takes his usual screened seat near it, and repeats with much firmness, and a little displeasure, as who should say, I am not a common man, and when I say tolerably, it must not be understood as a common expression. Volumnia, we are doing tolerably. At least there's no opposition to you, Volumnia asserts with confidence. No, Volumnia. This distracted country has lost its senses in many respects, I grieve to say, but it is not so mad as that. I am glad to hear it. Volumnia's finishing the sentence restores her to favour. Sir Leicester, with a gracious inclination of his head, seems to say to himself, a sensible woman this, on the whole, though occasionally precipitate. In fact, as to this question of opposition, the fair Dedlock's observation was superfluous. Sir Leicester, on these occasions, always delivering, in his own candidateship, as a kind of handsome wholesale order to be promptly executed. Two other little seats that belong to him he treats as retail orders of less importance, merely sending down the men, and signifying to the tradespeople, you will have the goodness to make these materials into two members of Parliament, and to send them home when done. I regret to say, Volumnia, that in many places the people have shown a bad spirit, and this opposition to the government has been of a most determined and most implacable description. Wretches, says Volumnia. Even, proceeds Sir Leicester, glancing at the circumjacent cousins on the sofas and ottomans, even in many, in fact in most, of those places in which the government has carried it against a faction. Note, by the way, that the Kudleites are always a fraction with the Doodleites, and that the Doodleites occupy exactly the same position towards the Kudleites. Even in them I am shocked for the credit of Englishmen, to be constrained to inform you that the party has not triumphed without being put to an enormous expense. Hundreds, says Sir Leicester, eyeing the cousins with increasing dignity and swelling indignation, hundreds of thousands of pounds. If Volumnia have a fault, it is the fault of being a trifle too innocent, seeing that the innocence which would go extremely well with the sash and tucker is a little out of keeping with the rouge and pearl necklace. Howbeit, impelled by innocence, she asks, "'What for?' "'Volumnia,' remonstrates Sir Leicester with his utmost severity, "'Volumnia!' 
no 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 i don't mean what for cries volumnia with her favourite little scream oh, how stupid i am i mean what a pity i am glad returns sir leicester that you do mean what a pity volumnia hastens to express her opinion that the shocking people ought to be tried as traitors and made to support the party i am glad volumnia repeats sir leicester unmindful of these mollifying sentiments that you do mean what a pity it is disgraceful to the electors but as you though inadvertently and without intending so unreasonable a question ask me what for let me reply to you for necessary expenses and i trust to your good sense volumnia not to pursue the subject here or elsewhere sir leicester feels it incumbent on him to observe a crushing aspect towards volumnia because it is whispered abroad that these necessary expenses will in some two hundred election petitions be unpleasantly connected with the word bribery and because some graceless jokers have consequently suggested the omission from the church service of the ordinary supplication in behalf of the high court of parliament and have recommended instead that the prayers of the congregation be requested for six hundred and fifty-eight gentlemen in a very unhealthy state i suppose observes volumnia having taken a little time to recover her spirits after her late castigation i suppose mr tulkinghorn has been worked to death i don't know says sir leicester opening his eyes why mr tulkinghorn should be worked to death i don't know what mr tulkinghorn's engagements may be he is not a candidate volumnia had thought he might have been employed sir leicester could desire to know by whom and what for volumnia abashed again suggests by somebody to advise and make arrangements sir leicester is not aware that any client of mr tulkinghorn has been in need of his assistance lady dedlock seated at an open window with her arm upon its cushioned ledge and looking out at the evening shadows falling on the park has seemed to attend since the lawyer's name was mentioned a languid cousin with a moustache in a state of extreme debility now observes from his couch that man told him yesterday that tulkinghorn had gone down to that iron place to give legal opinion about something and that contest being over to-day twould be highly jolly thing if tulkinghorn should pair with news that Coodleman was flawed mercury in attendance with coffee informs sir leicester hereupon that mr tulkinghorn has arrived and is taking dinner my lady turns her head inward for the moment and looks out again as before volumnia is charmed to hear that her delight is come he is so original such a stolid creature such an immense being for knowing all sorts of things and never telling them volumnia is persuaded that he must be a freemason is sure he is at the head of a lodge and wears short aprons and is made a perfect idol of with candlesticks and trowels these lively remarks the fair dedlock delivers in her youthful manner while making a purse he has not been here once she adds since i came i really had some thoughts of breaking my heart for the inconstant creature i had almost made up my mind that he was dead 
It may be the gathering gloom of evening, or it may be the darker gloom within herself, but a shade is on my lady's face, as if she thought, I would he were. "'Mr. Tulkinghorn,' says Sir Leicester, "'is always welcome here, and always discreet, wheresoever he is. A very valuable person, and deservedly respected.' The debilitated cousin supposes he is enormously rich, Fleur. "'He has a stake in the country,' says Sir Leicester. "'I have no doubt. He is, of course, handsomely paid, and he associates almost on a footing of equality with the highest society.' Everybody starts, for a gun is fired close by. Oh, "'Good gracious! What's that?' cries Volumnia, with her little withered scream. "'A rat,' says my lady. "'And they have shot him.' Enter Mr. Tulkinghorn, followed by Mercuries, with lamps and candles. "'No, no,' says Sir Leicester. "'I think not. My lady, do you object to the twilight?' "'On the contrary, my lady prefers it.' "'Volumnia?' Oh, nothing is so delicious to Volumnia as to sit and talk in the dark. Then take them away, says Sir Leicester. Talking horn, I beg your pardon. How do you do? Mr. Tulkinghorn, with his usual leisurely ease, advances, renders his passing homage to my lady, shakes Sir Leicester's hand, and subsides into the chair proper to him, when he has anything to communicate, on the opposite side of the baronet's little newspaper table. Sir Leicester is apprehensive that my lady, not being very well, will take cold at that open window. My lady is obliged to him, but would rather sit there for the air. Sir Leicester rises, adjusts her scarf about her, and returns to his seat. Mr. Tulkinghorn, in the meanwhile, takes a pinch of snuff. "'Now,' says Sir Leicester, "'how has that contest gone?' "'No, hollow from the beginning.' Not a chance. They have brought in both their people. You are beaten out of all reason. Three to one. It is a part of Mr. Tulkinghorn's policy and mastery to have no political opinions indeed. No opinions. Therefore, he says, you are beaten, and not we. Sir Leicester is majestically wroth. Volumnia never heard of such a thing. The debilitated cousin holds that it's sort of thing that's sure tappens, slongs, votes, given mob. "'It's the place, you know,' Mr. Tulkinghorn goes on to say, in the fast-increasing darkness, when there is silence again, "'where they wanted to put up Mrs. Rouncewell's son.' "'A proposal, which, as you correctly informed me at the time, he had the becoming taste and perception,' observes Sir Leicester, to decline. I cannot say that I by any means approve of the sentiments expressed by Mr. Rouncewell when he was here for some half-hour in this room, but there was a sense of propriety in his decision, which I am glad to acknowledge. Ha! says Mr. Tulkinghorn. It did not prevent him from being very active in this election, though. Sir Leicester is distinctly heard to gasp before speaking. "'Did I understand you? Did you say that Mr. Rouncewell had been very active in the selection?' 
uncommonly active. Against? Oh, dear, yes, against you. He is a very good speaker, plain and emphatic. He made a damaging effect, and has great influence. In the business part of the proceedings he carried all before him. It is evident to the whole company, though nobody can see him, that Sir Leicester is staring majestically. "'And he was much assisted,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, as a wind-up, "'by his son.' "'By his son, sir?' repeats Sir Leicester, with awful politeness. "'By his son.' "'The son who wished to marry the young woman in my lady's service?' "'That son. He has but one.' "'Then, upon my honour says Sir Leicester, after a terrific pause, during which he has been heard to snort, and felt to stare. "'Then, upon my honour, upon my life, upon my reputation and principles, the floodgates of society are burst open, and the waters have obliterated the landmarks of the framework of the cohesion by which these things are held together. General burst of cousinly indignation. Volumnia thinks it is really high time, you know, for somebody in power to step in and do something strong. Debilitated cousins think country's going devil, steeplechase pace. I beg— says Sir Leicester, in a breathless condition, that we may not comment further on this circumstance. Comment is superfluous. My lady, <laughs> let me suggest in reference to that young woman. I have no intention, observes my lady from her window in a low but decided tone, of parting with her. That was not my meaning returned Sir Leicester. I am glad to hear you say so. I would suggest that as you think her worthy of your patronage, you should exert your influence to keep her from these dangerous hands. You might show her what violence would be done in such association to her duties and principles, and you might preserve her for a better fate." You might point out to her that she probably would, in good time, find a husband at Chesney Wold, by whom she would not be, Sir Leicester adds, after a moment's consideration, dragged from the altars of her forefathers. These remarks he offers with his unvarying politeness and deference when he addresses himself to his wife. She merely moves her head in reply. The moon is rising, and where she sits there is a little stream of cold, pale light, in which her head is seen. "'It is worthy of remark,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, "'however, that these people are, in their way, very proud.' "'Proud?' Sir Leicester doubts his hearing. "'I should not be surprised if they all voluntarily abandoned the girl. Yes.' lover and all, instead of her abandoning them, supposing she remained at Chesney Wold under such circumstances. "'Well,' says Sir Leicester, tremulously, "'well, you should know, Mr. Tulkinghorn, 
you have been among them?' "'Really, Sir Lester,' returns the lawyer, "'I state the fact. Why, I could tell you a story, with Lady Dedlock's permission.' Her head concedes it, and Volumnia is enchanted. A story. Oh, he is going to tell something at last. A ghost in it, Volumnia hopes. "'No. Real flesh and blood.' Mr. Tulkinghorn stops for an instant, and repeats with some little emphasis, grafted upon his usual monotony, "'Real flesh and blood, Miss Dedlock.' "'Sir Lester, these particulars have only lately become known to me. They are very brief. They exemplify what I have said. I suppress names for the present.' Lady Dedlock will not think me ill-bred, I hope. By the light of the fire, which is low, he can be seen looking towards the moonlight. By the light of the moon, Lady Dedlock can be seen perfectly still. A townsman of this Mrs. Rouncewell, a man in exactly parallel circumstances, as I am told, had the good fortune to have a daughter, who attracted the notice of a great lady. I speak of really a great lady, not merely great to him, but married to a gentleman of your condition, Sir Lester. Sir Lester condescendingly says, Yes, Mr. Tulkinghorn, implying that then she must have appeared of very considerable moral dimensions, indeed, in the eyes of an ironmaster. The lady was wealthy and beautiful, and had a liking for the girl, and treated her with great kindness, and kept her always near her. Now this lady preserved a secret, under all her greatness, which she had preserved for many years. In fact, she had in early life been engaged to marry a young rake. He was a captain in the army, nothing connected with whom came to any good. She never did marry him but she gave birth to a child, of which he was the father. By the light of the fire he can be seen looking towards the moonlight. By the moonlight Lady Dedlock can be seen in profile, perfectly still. The captain in the army being dead, she believed herself safe. But a train of circumstances, with which I need not trouble you, led to discovery. As I received the story, they began in an imprudence on her own part one day, when she was taken by surprise, which shows how difficult it is for the firmest of us, and she was very firm, to be always guarded. There was great domestic trouble and amazement, you may suppose. I leave you to imagine, Sir Lester, the husband's grief. But that is not the present point." When Mr. Rouncewell's townsman heard of the disclosure, he no more allowed the girl to be patronised and honoured than he would have suffered her to be trodden underfoot before his eyes. Such was his pride that he indignantly took her away, as if from reproach and disgrace. He had no sense of the honour done him and his daughter by the lady's condescension, not the least. He resented the girl's position as if the lady had been the commonest of commoners. That is the story. I hope Lady Dedlock will excuse its painful nature. There are various opinions on the merits, more or less conflicting with Volumnia's, 
that fair young creature cannot believe there ever was any such lady, and rejects the whole history on the threshold. The majority incline to the debilitated cousin's sentiment, which is in few words, no business, Rouncewell's fernal townsman. Sir Leicester generally refers back in his mind to what Tyler, and arranges a sequence of events on a plan of his own. There is not much conversation in all, for late hours have been kept at Chesney Wold since the necessary expenses elsewhere began, and this is the first night in many on which the family have been alone. It is past ten when Sir Leicester begs Mr. Tulkinghorn to ring for candles. Then the stream of moonlight has swelled into a lake, and then Lady Dedlock for the first time moves and rises, and comes forward to a table for a glass of water. Winking cousins, bat-like in the candle glare, crowd round to give it. Volumnia, always ready for something better if procurable, takes another, a very mild sip of which contents her. Lady Dedlock, graceful, self-possessed, looked after by admiring eyes, passes away slowly down the long perspective by the side of that nymph, not at all improving her as a question of contrast. End of chapter 40Chapter forty one of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty one. In Mr. Tulkinghorn's Room. Mr. Tulkinghorn arrives in his turret room, a little breathed by the journey up, though leisurely performed. There is an expression on his face, as if he had discharged his mind of some grave matter, and were, in his close way, satisfied. To say of a man so severely and strictly self-repressed, that he is triumphant, would be to do him as great an injustice as to suppose him troubled with love, or sentiment, or any romantic weakness. He is sedately satisfied. Perhaps there is a rather increased sense of power upon him, as he loosely grasps one of his veinous wrists with his other hand, and holding it behind his back, walks noiselessly up and down. There is a capacious writing-table in the room, on which is a pretty large accumulation of papers. The green lamp is lighted, his reading-glasses lie upon the desk, the easy-chair is wheeled up to it, and it would seem as though he had intended to bestow an hour or so upon these claims on his attention, before going to bed but he happens not to be in a business mind. After a glance at the documents awaiting his notice, with his head bent low over the table, the old man's sight for print or writing being defective at night, he opens the French window, and steps out upon the leads. There he again walks slowly up and down in the same attitude, subsiding, if a man so cool may have any need to subside, from the story he has related downstairs. The time was once when men as knowing as Mr. Tulkinghorn would walk on turret-tops in the starlight, and look up into the sky to read their fortunes there. Hosts of stars are visible to-night, though their brilliancy is eclipsed by the splendour of the moon. If he be seeking his own star as he methodically turns and turns upon the leads, it should be but a pale one to be so rustily represented below. If he be tracing out his destiny, that may be written in other characters, nearer to his hand. 
As he paces the leads with his eyes most probably as high above his thoughts as they are high above the earth, he is suddenly stopped in passing the window by two eyes that meet his own. The ceiling of his room is rather low, and the upper part of the door, which is opposite the window, is of glass. There is an inner baize door, too, but the night being warm he did not close it when he came upstairs. These eyes that meet his own are looking in through the glass from the corridor outside. He knows them well. The blood has not flushed into his face so suddenly and redly for many a long year as when he recognises Lady Dedlock. He steps into the room, and she comes in too, closing both the doors behind her. There is a wild disturbance, is it fear or anger, in her eyes, in her carriage and all else she looks as she looked downstairs two hours ago. Is it fear, or is it anger now? He cannot be sure. Both might be as pale, both as intent. Lady Dedlock. She does not speak at first, nor even when she has slowly dropped into the easy chair by the table. They look at each other like two pictures. Why have you told my story to so many persons? Lady Dedlock, it was necessary for me to inform you that I knew it. How long have you known it? I have suspected it a long while, fully known it a little while. Months? Days? He stands before her with one hand on a chair back, and the other in his old-fashioned waistcoat and shirt-frill, exactly as he has stood before her at any time since her marriage. The same formal politeness, the same composed deference, that might as well be defiance. The whole man, the same dark, cold object, at the same distance, which nothing has ever diminished. Is this true concerning the poor girl? He slightly inclines, and advances his head, as not quite understanding the question. You know what you related. Is it true? Do her friends know my story also? Is it the town talk yet? Is it chalked upon the walls and cried in the streets? So, anger and fear and shame, all three contending. What power this woman has to keep these raging passions down! Mr. Tulkinghorn's thoughts take such form as he looks at her, with his ragged grey eyebrows, a hair's breadth more contracted than usual, under her gaze. No, Lady Dedlock, that was a hypothetical case, arising out of Sir Leicester's unconsciously carrying the matter with so high a hand. But it would be a real case if they knew what we know. Then they do not know it yet? No. Can I save the poor girl from injury before they know it? Really, Lady Dedlock, Mr. Tulkinghorn replies, I cannot give a satisfactory opinion on that point. And he thinks, with the interest of attentive curiosity, as he watches the struggle in her breast, the power and force of this woman are astonishing. Sir, she says, for the moment obliged to set her lips with all the energy she has, that she may speak distinctly. I will make it plainer. I do not dispute your hypothetical case. I anticipated it, and felt its truth as strongly as you can do, when I saw Mr. Rouncewell here. I knew very well that if he could have had the power of seeing me as I was, 
he would consider the poor girl tarnished by having for a moment been, although most innocently, the subject of my great and distinguished patronage. But I have an interest in her, or I should rather say, no longer belonging to this place, I had. And if you can find so much consideration for the woman under your foot as to remember that, she will be very sensible of your mercy. Mr. Tulkinghorn, profoundly attentive, throws this off with a shrug of self-depreciation, and contracts his eyebrows a little more. "'You have prepared me for my exposure, and I thank you for that, too. Is there anything that you require of me? Is there any claim that I can release, or any charge or trouble, that I can spare my husband in obtaining his release, by certifying to the exactness of your discovery? I will write anything.' here and now, that you will dictate. I am ready to do it. And she would do it, thinks the lawyer, watchful of the firm hand with which she takes the pen. I will not trouble you, Lady Dedlock. Pray spare yourself. I have long expected this, as you know. I neither wish to spare myself, nor to be spared. You can do nothing worse to me than you have done. Do what remains now. "'Lady Dedlock, there is nothing to be done. I will take leave to say a few words, when you have finished.' Their need for watching one another should be over now, but they do it all this time, and the stars watch them both through the opened window. Away in the moonlight lie the woodland fields at rest, and the wide house is as quiet as the narrow one. The narrow one! Where are the digger and the spade, this peaceful night, destined to add the last great secret to the many secrets of the Tulkinghorn existence. Is the man born yet? Is the spade wrought yet? Curious questions to consider. More curious, perhaps, not to consider, under the watching stars upon a summer night. Of repentance, or remorse, or any feeling of mine, Lady Dedlock presently proceeds, I say not a word. If I were not dumb, you would be deaf. Let that go by. It is not for your ears. He makes a feint of offering a protest, but she sweeps it away with her disdainful hand. Of other and very different things I come to speak to you. My jewels are all in their proper places of keeping. They will be found there. So my dresses. So all the valuables I have. Some ready money I had with me, pleased to say, but no large amount. I did not wear my own dress, in order that I might avoid observation. I went to be henceforth lost. Make this known. I leave no other charge with you. "'Excuse me, Lady Dedlock,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, quite unmoved. "'I am not sure that I understand you. You want—' "'To be lost to all here. I leave Chesney Wold to-night.' I go this hour. Mr. Tulkinghorn shakes his head. She rises, but he, without moving hand from chair back or from old-fashioned waistcoat and shirt frill, shakes his head. What? Not go, as I have said. No, Lady Dedlock. He very calmly replies. Do you know the relief that my disappearance will be? Have you forgotten the stain and blot upon this place, and where it is, and who it is? 
"'No, Lady Dedlock, not by any means.' Without deigning to rejoin, she moves to the inner door, and has it in her hand, when he says to her, without himself stirring hand or foot or raising his voice, "'Lady Dedlock, have the goodness to stop and hear me, or before you reach the staircase I shall ring the alarm bell and rouse the house, and then I must speak out before every guest and servant, every man and woman in it.' He has conquered her. She falters, trembles, and puts her hand confusedly to her head. Slight tokens these in any one else, but when so practised an eye as Mr. Tulkinghorn's sees indecision for a moment in such a subject, he thoroughly knows its value. He promptly says again, "'Have the goodness to hear me, Lady Dedlock,' and motions to the chair from which she has risen. She hesitates, but he motions again, and she sits down. The relations between us are of an unfortunate description, Lady Dedlock, but as they are not of my making, I will not apologise for them. The position I hold in reference to Sir Leicester is so well known to you that I can hardly imagine but that I must long have appeared in your eyes the natural person to make this discovery. Sir, she returns without looking up from the ground on which her eyes are now fixed. I had better have gone. It would have been far better not to have detained me. I have no more to say. Excuse me, Lady Dedlock, if I add a little more to hear. I wish to hear it at the window, then. I can't breathe where I am. His jealous glance, as she walks that way, betrays an instant's misgiving, that she may have it in her thoughts to leap over, and dashing against ledge and cornice strike her life out upon the terrace below but a moment's observation of her figure she stands in the window without any support looking out at the stars not up gloomily out at those stars which are low in the heavens reassures him by facing round as she has moved he stands a little behind her lady dedlock i have not yet been able to come to a decision satisfactory to myself on the course before me I am not clear what to do or how to act next. I must request you, in the meantime, to keep your secret as you have kept it so long, and not to wonder that I keep it too. He pauses, but she makes no reply. Pardon me, Lady Dedlock, this is an important subject. You are honouring me with your attention? I am. Thank you. I might have known it from what I have seen of your strength of character. I ought not to have asked the question, but I have the habit of making sure of my ground, step by step, as I go on. The sole consideration in this unhappy case is Sir Leicester. Then why? She asks in a low voice, and without removing her gloomy look from those distant stars, do you detain me in this house? Because he is the consideration, Lady Dedlock. I have no occasion to tell you that Sir Leicester is a very proud man, that his reliance upon you is implicit, that the fall of that moon out of the sky would not amaze him more than your fall from your high position as his wife. She breathes quickly and heavily, but she stands as unflinchingly as ever he has seen her in the midst of her grandest company. I declare to you, Lady Dedlock, 
that with anything short of this case that I have, I would as soon have hoped to root up by means of my own strength and my own hands the oldest tree on this estate, as to shake your hold upon Sir Leicester, and Sir Leicester's trust and confidence in you. And even now, with this case, I hesitate. Not that he could doubt, that, even with him, is impossible, but that nothing can prepare him for the blow. "'Not my flight?' she returned. "'Think of it again. "'Your flight, Lady Dedlock, would spread the whole truth, "'and a hundred times the whole truth far and wide. "'It would be impossible to save the family credit for a day. "'It is not to be thought of.' "'There is a quiet decision in his reply, "'which admits of no remonstrance. "'When I speak of Sir Leicester being the sole consideration,' He and the family credit are one. Sir Leicester and the baronetcy, Sir Leicester and Chesney Wold, Sir Leicester and his ancestors and his patrimony. Mr. Tulkinghorn, very dry here. Ah, I need not say to you, Lady Dedlock, inseparable. Go on. Therefore, says Mr. Tulkinghorn, pursuing his case in his jog-trot style, I have much to consider. This is to be hushed up if it can be. How can it be, if Sir Leicester is driven out of his wits, or laid upon a deathbed? If I inflicted this shock upon him to-morrow morning, how could the immediate change in him be accounted for? What could have caused it? What could have divided you? Lady Dedlock, the war-chalking and the street-crying would come on directly, and you are to remember that it would not affect you merely, whom I cannot at all consider in this business. "'But your husband, Lady Dedlock, your husband.' "'He gets plainer as he gets on, "'but not an atom more emphatic or animated. "'There is another point of view,' he continues, "'in which the case presents itself. "'Sir Leicester is devoted to you almost to infatuation. "'He might not be able to overcome that infatuation, "'even knowing what we know. "'I am putting an extreme case, but it might be so.' If so, it were better that he knew nothing. Better for common sense, better for him, better for me. I must take all this into account, and it combines to render a decision very difficult. She stands looking out at the same stars without a word. They are beginning to pale, and she looks as if their coldness froze her. "'My experience teaches me,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, who has by this time got his hands in his pockets, and is going on in his business consideration of the matter like a machine. "'My experience teaches me, Lady Dedlock, that most of the people I know would do far better to leave marriage alone. It is at the bottom of three-fourths of their troubles. So I thought when Sir Leicester married, and so I always have thought since. No more about that. I must now be guided by circumstances. In the meantime I must beg you to keep your own counsel, and I will keep mine.' "'I am to drag my present life on, holding its pains at your pleasure, day by day?' she asks, still looking at the distant sky. "'Yes, I am afraid so, Lady Dedlock.' "'It is necessary, you think, that I should be so tied to the stake? I am sure that what I recommend is necessary. I am to remain on this gaudy platform on which my miserable deception has been so long acted, and it is to fall beneath me when you give the signal," she said slowly. "'Not without notice, Lady Dedlock. I shall take no step without forewarning you. 
she asks all her questions, as if she were repeating them from memory, or calling them over in her sleep. "'We are to meet as usual?' "'Precisely as usual, if you please.' "'And I am to hide my guilt, as I have done so many years.' "'As you have done so many years.' I should not have made that reference myself, Lady Dedlock, but I may now remind you that your secret can be no heavier to you than it was, and is no worse and no better than it was. I know it certainly, but I believe we have never wholly trusted each other. She stands absorbed in the same frozen way for some little time before asking, Is there anything more to be said to-night? Why, Mr. Tulkinghorn returns methodically, as he softly rubs his hands, I should like to be assured of your acquiescence in my arrangements, Lady Dedlock. You may be assured of it. Good. And I would wish in conclusion to remind you, as a business precaution, in case it should be necessary to recall the fact in any communication with Sir Leicester, that throughout our interview I have expressly stated my sole consideration to be Sir Leicester's feelings and honour and the family reputation. I should have been happy to have made Lady Dedlock a prominent consideration, too, if the case had admitted of it, but unfortunately it does not. I can attest your fidelity, sir. Both before and after saying it, she remains absorbed, but at length moves and turns, unshaken in her natural and acquired presence, towards the door. Mr. Tulkinghorn opens both the doors exactly as he would have done yesterday, or as he would have done ten years ago, and makes his old-fashioned bow as she passes out. It is not an ordinary look that he receives from the handsome face as it goes into the darkness, and it is not an ordinary movement, though a very slight one, that acknowledges his courtesy. But as he reflects when he is left alone, the woman has been putting no common constraint upon herself— he would know it all the better, if he saw the woman pacing her own rooms, with her hair wildly thrown from her flung-back face, her hands clasped behind her head, her figure twisted as if by pain. He would think so all the more, if he saw the woman thus hurrying up and down for hours, without fatigue, without intermission, followed by the faithful step upon the ghost's walk. But he shuts out the now chilled air, draws the window-curtain, goes to bed, and falls asleep. And truly, when the stars go out, and the one day peeps into the turret-chamber, finding him at his oldest, he looks as if the digger and the spade were both commissioned, and would soon be digging. The same one day peeps in at Sir Leicester, pardoning the repentant country in a majestically condescending dream, and at the cousins entering on various public employments, principally receipt of salary, and at the chaste Volumnia bestowing a dower of fifty thousand pounds upon a hideous old general, with a mouth of false teeth like a pianoforte too full of keys, long the admiration of Bath, and the terror of every other community. Also into rooms high in the roof, and into offices in courtyards, and over stables, where humble ambition dreams of bliss, in keepers' lodges, and in holy matrimony with Will or Sally, up comes the bright sun, drawing everything up with it, the wills and sallies, the latent vapour in the earth, the drooping leaves and flowers, the birds and beasts and creeping things, the gardeners to sweep the dewy turf, and unfold emerald velvet, where the roller passes, the smoke of the great kitchen fire wreathing itself straight and high into the lightsome air, 
Lastly, up comes the flag over Mr. Tulkinghorn's unconscious head, cheerfully proclaiming that Sir Leicester and Lady Dedlock are in their happy home, and that there is hospitality at the place in Lincolnshire. End of chapter 41Chapter forty two of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty two in Mr. Tulkinghorn's Chambers. From the verdant undulations and the spreading oaks of the Dedlock property, Mr. Tulkinghorn transfers himself to the stale heat and dust of London. His manner of coming and going between the two places is one of his impenetrabilities. He walks into Chesney Wold as if it were next door to his chambers, and returns to his chambers as if he had never been out of Lincoln's Inn Fields. He neither changes his dress before the journey, nor talks of it afterwards. He melted out of his turret-room this morning, just as now, in the late twilight, he melts into his own square. Like a dingy London bird, among the birds at roost in these pleasant fields, where the sheep are all made into parchment, the goats into wigs, and the pasture into chaff, the lawyer, smoke-dried and faded, dwelling among mankind but not consorting with them, aged without experience of genial youth, and so long used to make his cramped nest in holes and corners of human nature, that he has forgotten its broader and better range, comes sauntering home. In the oven made by the hot pavements and hot buildings, he has baked himself drier than usual, and he has in his thirsty mind his mellowed port wine, half a century old. The lamplighter is skipping up and down his ladder on Mr. Tulkinghorn's side of the fields, when that high priest of noble mysteries arrives at his own dull courtyard. He ascends the door-steps, and is gliding into the dusky hall, when he encounters, on the top step, a bowing and propitiatory little man. "'Is that Snagsby?' Uh, uh, "'Yes, sir. I, I hope you are well, sir. I was just giving you up, sir, and going home.' "'Aye. What is it? What do you want with me?' Uh, "'Well, sir,' says Mr. Snagsby, holding his hat at the side of his head in his deference towards his best customer, "'I was wishful to say a word to you, sir.' "'Can you say it here?' Uh, "'Perfectly, sir.' "'Say it, then.' The lawyer turns, leans his arms on the iron railing at the top of the steps, and looks at the lamplighter lighting the courtyard. "'It is uh, relating,' says Mr. Snagsby, in a mysterious low voice, "'it is relating, not to put too fine a point upon it, to the uh, foreigner, sir.' Mr. Tulkinghorn eyes him with some surprise. "'What foreigner?' "'The... Uh, "'Foreign female, sir. French, if I don't mistake. I'm not acquainted with that language myself, but I should judge from her manners and appearance that she was French. Anyways, certainly foreign. Her that was upstairs, sir, when Mr. Bucket and me had the honour of waiting upon you with the sweeping-boy that night.' "'Oh, yes, yes, sir. Mademoiselle Hortense.' <coughs> "'Indeed, sir. Mr. Snagsby coughs his cough of submission behind his hat. "'I am not acquainted myself with the names of foreigners in general, but I have no doubt it would be that.' <coughs> Mr. 
Mr. Snagsby appears to have set out in this reply with some desperate design of repeating the name, but on reflection coughs again to excuse himself. "'And what can you have to say, Snagsby?' demands Mr. Tulkinghorn. "'About her?' <coughs> "'Well, sir,' returns the stationer, shading his communication with his hat, "'it falls a little hard upon me.' my domestic happiness is very great <clears throat> at least it's as great as can be expected i'm sure but my little woman is rather given to jealousy not to put too fine a point upon it she is very much given to jealousy and you see a foreign <clears throat> female of that genteel appearance coming into the shop and hovering <clears throat> i should be the last to make use of a strong expression if i could avoid it but hovering sir in the court you know it is now ain't it i only put it to yourself sir mr snagsby having said this in a very plaintive manner throws in a cough of general application to fill up all the blanks why what do you mean asked mr tulkinghorn <clears throat> oh, just so, sir, returns Mr. Snagsby, I was sure you would feel it yourself, and would excuse the reasonableness of my feelings, when coupled with the known excitableness of my little woman. You see, the foreign female, which you mentioned her name just now, with quite a native sound, I'm sure, caught up the word Snagsby that night, being uncommon quick. I made inquiry, and got the direction, and come at dinner-time. Now, Guster, our young woman, is timid, and has fits, and she, taking fright at the foreigner's looks, which are fierce, <coughs> and at a grinding manner that she has a speaking, which is calculated to alarm a weak mind, gave way to it instead of bearing up against it, and tumbled down the kitchen stairs, out of one into another such fits as i do sometimes think i've never gone into or come out of in any house but ours <coughs> consequently there was by good fortune ample occupation for my little woman and only me to answer the shop when she did say that mr tulkinghorn being always denied to her by his employer which i had no doubt at the time was a foreign mode of viewing a clerk she would do herself the pleasure of continually calling at my place until she was let in here since then she has been as i began by saying offering offering sir mr snagsby repeats the word with pathetic emphasis in the court the effects of which movement <coughs> it is impossible to calculate i shouldn't wonder if it might have already given rise to the painfullest mistakes even in the neighbours minds not mentioning if such a thing was possible my little woman whereas goodness knows says mr snagsby shaking his head <clears throat> i never had an idea of a foreign female except as being formally connected with a bunch of brooms and a baby or at the present time with the tambourine and earrings I never had, I do assure you, sir. Mr. Tulkinghorn had listened gravely to this complaint, and inquires when the stationer has finished. And that's all, is it, Snagsby? Why, yes, sir, that's all, <coughs> says Mr. Snagsby, ending with a cough that plainly adds, and it's enough, too, for me. 
"'I don't know what Mademoiselle Hortense may want or mean, unless she is mad,' says the lawyer. "'Even if she was, you know, sir,' Mr. Snagsby pleads, "'it wouldn't be a consolation to have some weapon or another in the form of a foreign dagger planted in the family.' "'No,' says the other. "'Well, well, this shall be stopped. I am sorry you have been inconvenienced. If she comes again, send her here.' Mr. Snagsby, with much bowing and short apologetic coughing, takes his leave, lightened in heart. Mr. Tulkinghorn goes upstairs, saying to himself, "'These women were created to give trouble the whole earth over. The mistress not being enough to deal with, here is the maid now, but I will be short with this jade at least.' So saying, he unlocks his door, gropes his way into his murky rooms, lights his candles, and looks about him. It is too dark to see much of the allegory overhead, but that importunate Roman, who is for ever toppling out of the clouds and pointing, is at his old work pretty distinctly. Not honouring him with much attention, Mr. Tulkinghorn takes a small key from his pocket, unlocks a drawer, in which there is another key, which unlocks a chest, in which there is another, and so comes to the cellar key, with which he prepares to descend to the regions of old wine. He is going towards the door with a candle in his hand, when a knock comes. "'Who is this?' "'Aye, aye, mistress, it's you, is it? You appear at a good time. I have just been hearing of you. Now, what do you want?' He stands the candle on the chimney-piece in the clerk's hall, and taps his dry cheek with the key, as he addresses these words of welcome to Mademoiselle Hortense. That feline personage, with her lips tightly shut, and her eyes looking out at him sideways, softly closes the door before replying. "'I have had a great deal of trouble to find you, sir.' "'Have you?' "'I have been here very often, sir. It has always been said to me, he is not at home, he is engaged, he is this and that, he is not for you.' "'Quite right, and quite true.' "'Not true. Lies.' At times there is a suddenness in the manner of Mademoiselle Hortense, so like a bodily spring upon the subject of it, that such subject involuntarily starts and falls back. It is Mr. Tulkinghorn's case at present, though Mademoiselle Hortense, with her eyes almost shut up, but still looking out sideways, is only smiling contemptuously, and shaking her head. "'Now, mistress,' says the lawyer, tapping the key hastily upon the chimney-piece, "'If you have anything to say, say it. Say it.' "'Sir, you have not used me well. You have been mean and shabby.' "'Mean and shabby, eh?' returns the lawyer, rubbing his nose with the key. "'Yes. What is it that I tell you? You know you have. You have attracted me, catched me, to give you information.' You have asked me to show you the dress of mine my lady must have wore that night. You have prayed me to come in it here to meet that boy. Say, is it not? Mademoiselle Hortense makes another spring. You are a vixen. A vixen. Mr. Tulkinghorn seems to meditate, as he looks distrustfully at her, then replies, Well, wench, well, I paid you. You paid me. She repeats with fierce disdain, Two sovereign! I have not changed them. I refuse them. I despise them. I throw them from me. 
which she literally does, taking them out of her bosom as she speaks, and flinging them with such violence on the floor, that they jerk up again into the light, before they roll away into corners, and slowly settle down there, after spinning vehemently. "'Now,' says Mademoiselle Hortense, darkening her large eyes again, "'you have paid me, eh? My God, oh, yes!' Mr. Tulkinghorn rubs his head with the key, while she entertains herself with a sarcastic laugh. "'You must be rich, my fair friend,' he composedly observes, "'to throw money about in that way.' "'I am rich,' she returns. "'I am very rich, in hate. I hate my lady of all my heart. You know that.' "'Know it? How should I know it?' "'Because you have known it perfectly before you prayed me to give you that information. "'Because you have known perfectly that I was enraged.' "'It appears impossible for Mademoiselle to roll the letter R sufficiently in this word, "'notwithstanding that she assists her energetic delivery by clenching both her hands and setting all her teeth. "'Oh, I knew that, did I?' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, examining the wards of the key. "'Yes, without doubt. I am not blind. You have made sure of me, because you knew that. You had reason. I detest her.' Mademoiselle folds her arms, and throws this last remark at him over one of her shoulders. "'Having said this, have you anything else to say, Mademoiselle?' "'I am not yet placed. Place me well. Find me a good condition.' If you cannot, or do not choose to do that, employ me to pursue her, to chase her, to disgrace and to dishonour her. I will help you, and with a good will. It is what you do. Do I not know that? You appear to know a good deal, Mr. Tulkinghorn retorts. Do I not? Is it? that I am so weak as to believe, like a child, that I come here in a dress to receive that boy, only to decide a little bet, a wager? Eh? My God! Oh, yes! In this reply, down to the word wager, inclusive, Mademoiselle has been ironically polite and tender, then are suddenly dashed into the bitterest and most defiant scorn, with her black eyes in one and the same moment very nearly shut and staringly wide open. "'Now let us see,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, tapping his chin with the key, and looking imperturbably at her, "'how this matter stands.' "'Ah! Let us see,' Mademoiselle assents, with many angry and tight nods of her head. "'You come here to make a remarkably modest demand, which you have just stated, and it not being conceded, you will come again.' "'And again,' says Mademoiselle, with more tight and angry nods, "'and yet again, and yet again, and many times again, in effect, for ever.' "'And not only here, but you will go to Mr. Snagsby's too, perhaps? That visit not succeeding either, you will go again, perhaps?' "'And again,' repeats Mademoiselle, cataleptic with determination, "'and yet again, and yet again, and many times again, in effect, for ever.' "'Very well. Now, Mademoiselle Hortense, let me recommend you to take the candle, and pick up that money of yours. 
I think you will find it behind the clerk's partition in the corner yonder. She merely throws a laugh over her shoulder, and stands her ground with folded arms. You will not, eh? No, I will not. So much the poorer you, so much the richer I. Look, mistress, this is the key of my wine-cellar. It is a large key, but the keys of prisons are larger. In this city there are houses of correction, where the treadmills are for women, the gates of which are very strong and heavy, and no doubt the keys too. I am afraid a lady of your spirit and activity would find it an inconvenience to have one of those keys turned upon her for any length of time. What do you think?' "'I think,' Mademoiselle replies without any action, and in a clear obliging voice, "'that you are a miserable wretch.' "'Probably,' returns Mr. Tulkinghorn, quietly blowing his nose. "'But I don't ask what you think of myself.' I ask what you think of the prison. Nothing. What does it matter to me? Why, it matters this much, mistress, says the lawyer, deliberately putting away his handkerchief and adjusting his frill. The law is so despotic here that it interferes to prevent any of our good English citizens from being troubled, even by a lady's visits against his desire. And on his complaining that he is so troubled, it takes hold of the troublesome lady, and shuts her up in prison under hard discipline, turns the key upon her mistress, illustrating with the cellar key. Truly, returns Mademoiselle in the same pleasant voice, that is droll, but my faith, still, what does it matter to me? My fair friend, says Mr. Tulkinghorn, make another visit here, or at Snagsby's, and you shall learn. In that case, you will send me to the prison, perhaps? Perhaps. It would be contradictory for one in Mademoiselle's state of agreeable jocularity to foam at the mouth, otherwise a tigerish expansion thereabouts might look as if a very little more would make her do it. In a word, mistress, says Mr. Tulkinghorn, I am sorry to be unpolite, but if you ever present yourself uninvited here, or there, again, I will give you over to the police. Their gallantry is great, but they carry troublesome people through the streets in an ignominious manner, strapped down on a board, my good wench. "'I will prove you,' whispers Mademoiselle, stretching out her hand. "'I will try, if you dare to do it.' "'And if,' pursues the lawyer, without minding her, "'I place you in that good condition of being locked up in jail, "'it will be some time before you find yourself at liberty again.' "'I will prove you,' repeats Mademoiselle, in her former whisper. "'And now,' proceeds the lawyer, still without minding her, "'you had better go. "'Think twice before you come here again.' "'Think you?' she answers, twice two hundred times. "'You were dismissed by your lady, you know,' Mr. Tulkinghorn observes, following her out upon the staircase, "'as the most implacable and unmanageable of women. Now turn over a new leaf, and take warning by what I say to you. For what I say I mean, and what I threaten I will do, mistress.' She goes down without answering or looking behind her. 
when she is gone, he goes down too, and returning with this cobweb-covered bottle, devotes himself to a leisurely enjoyment of its contents, now and then, as he throws his head back in his chair, catching sight of the pertinacious Roman, pointing from the ceiling. End of chapter 42《Chapter 43 of Bleak House This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 43 Esther's Narrative. It matters little now how much I thought of my living mother, who had told me evermore to consider her dead. I could not venture to approach her or to communicate with her in writing for my sense of the peril in which her life was passed, was only to be equalled by my fears of increasing it. Knowing that my mere existence as a living creature was an unforeseen danger in her way, I could not always conquer that terror of myself which had seized me when I first knew the secret. At no time did I dare to utter her name. I felt as if I did not even dare to hear it. If the conversation anywhere, when I was present, took that direction— as it sometimes naturally did, I tried not to hear. I mentally counted, repeated something that I knew, or went out of the room. I am conscious now that I often did these things, when there can have been no danger of her being spoken of, but I did them in the dread I had of hearing anything that might lead to her betrayal, and to her betrayal through me. It matters little now how often I recall the tones of my mother's voice, wondered whether I should ever hear it again, as I so longed to do, and thought how strange and desolate it was that it should be so new to me. It matters little that I watched for every public mention of my mother's name, that I passed and repassed the door of her house in town, loving it, but afraid to look at it, that I once sat in the theatre when my mother was there, and saw me and when we were so wide asunder before the great company of all degrees that any link or confidence between us seemed a dream. It is all, all over. My lot has been so blessed that I can relate little of myself which is not a story of goodness and generosity in others. I may well pass that little and go on. When we were settled at home again, Ada and I had many conversations with my guardian, of which Richard was the theme. My dear girl was deeply grieved that he should do their kind cousin so much wrong, but she was so faithful to Richard that she could not bear to blame him even for that. My guardian was assured of it, and never coupled his name with a word of reproof. "'Rick is mistaken, my dear,' he would say to her. "'Well, well.' "'We have all been mistaken over and over again. "'We must trust to you and time to set him right.' "'We knew afterwards what we suspected then, "'that he did not trust to time "'until he had often tried to open Richard's eyes, "'that he had written to him, gone to him, talked with him, "'tried every gentle and persuasive art his kindness could devise. "'Our poor devoted Richard was deaf and blind to all.' If he were wrong, he would make amends when the chancery suit was over. 
if he were groping in the dark, he could not do better than do his utmost to clear away those clouds in which so much was confused and obscured. Suspicion and misunderstanding were the fault of the suit. Then let him work the suit out and come through it to his right mind. This was his unvarying reply. Jarndyce and Jarndyce had obtained such possession of his whole nature that it was impossible to place any consideration before him which he did not, with a distorted kind of reason, make a new argument in favour of his doing what he did. "'So that it is even more mischievous,' said my guardian once to me, "'to remonstrate with the poor dear fellow than to leave him alone.' I took one of these opportunities of mentioning my doubts of Mr. Skimpole as a good adviser for Richard. "'Adviser?' returned my guardian, laughing. "'My dear, who would advise with Skimpole?' "'Encourager would perhaps have been a better word,' said I. "'Encourager?' returned my guardian again. "'Who could be encouraged by Skimpole?' "'Not Richard.' I asked. No, he replied. Such an unworldly, uncalculating, gossamer creature is a relief to him, and an amusement, but as to advising, or encouraging, or occupying a serious station towards anybody or anything, it is simply not to be thought of in such a child as Skimpole. Pray, cousin John, said Ada, who had just joined us, and now looked over my shoulder, what made him such a child? What made him such a child? inquired my guardian, rubbing his head, a little at a loss. Yes, cousin John. Why? he slowly replied, ruffling his head more and more. He is all sentiment, and—and and susceptibility. And, and sensibility, and imagination. And these qualities are not regulated in him, somehow. I suppose the people who admired him for them in his youth attached too much importance to them, and too little to any training that would have balanced and adjusted them. And so he became what he is. "'Hey,' said my guardian, stopping short and looking at us hopefully, what do you think you do ada glancing at me said she thought it was a pity she should be an expense to richard so it is so it is returned my guardian hurriedly that must not be we must arrange that i must prevent it that will never do and i said i thought it was to be regretted that he had ever introduced richard to mr voles for a present of five pounds did he said my guardian with a passing shade of vexation on his face but there you have the man there you have the man there is nothing mercenary in that with him he has no idea of the value of money he introduces rick and then he is good friends with mr bowles and borrows five pounds of him he means nothing by it and thinks nothing of it he told you himself i'll be bound my dear "'Oh, yes,' said I. "'Exactly,' cried my guardian, quite triumphant. "'There you have the man. If he had meant any harm by it, or was conscious of any harm in it, he wouldn't tell it. He tells it as he does it in mere simplicity. 
but you shall see him in his own home, and then you'll understand him better. We must pay a visit to Harold Skimpole, and caution him on these points. Lord bless you, my dears, an infant, an infant. In pursuance of this plan, we went into London on an early day, and presented ourselves at Mr. Skimpole's door. He lived in a place called the Polygon, in Somers Town, where there were at that time a number of poor Spanish refugees walking about in cloaks, smoking little paper cigars. Whether he was a better tenant than one might have supposed, in consequence of his friend somebody always paying his rent at last, or whether his inaptitude for business rendered it particularly difficult to turn him out, I don't know, but he had occupied the same house some years. It was in a state of dilapidation, quite equal to our expectation. Two or three of the area railings were gone, the water-butt was broken, the knocker was loose, the bell-handle had been pulled off a long time to judge from the rusty state of the wire, and dirty footprints on the steps were the only signs of its being inhabited. A slatternly, full-blown girl, who seemed to be bursting out at the rents in her gown, and the cracks in her shoes, like an overripe berry, answered our knock by opening the door a very little way, and stopping up the gap with her figure. As she knew Mr. Jarndyce—indeed, Ada and I both thought that she evidently associated him with the receipt of her wages—she immediately relented, and allowed us to pass in. The lock of the door being in a disabled condition, she then applied herself to securing it with the chain, which was not in good action either, and said, would we go upstairs. We went upstairs to the first floor, still seeing no other furniture than the dirty footprints. Mr. Jarndyce, without further ceremony, entered a room there, and we followed. It was dingy enough, and not at all clean, but furnished with an odd kind of shabby luxury, with a large footstool, a sofa, and plenty of cushions, an easy chair, and plenty of pillows, a piano, books, drawing materials, music, newspapers, and a few sketches and pictures. A broken pane of glass, in one of the dirty windows, was papered and wafered over, but there was a little plate of hothouse nectarines on the table, and there was another of grapes, and another of sponge-cakes, and there was a bottle of light wine. Mr. Skimpole himself reclined upon the sofa in a dressing-gown, drinking some fragrant coffee from an old china cup. It was then about midday, and looking at a collection of wallflowers in the balcony. He was not in the least disconcerted by our appearance, but rose and received us in his usual airy manner. "'Here I am, you see,' he said, when we were seated, not without some little difficulty, the greater part of the chairs being broken. "'Here I am. This is my frugal breakfast. Some men want legs of beef and mutton for breakfast. I don't. Give me my peach, my cup of coffee, and my claret. I am content. I don't want them for themselves, but they remind me of the sun. There's nothing solar about legs of beef and mutton. Mere animal satisfaction.' This is our friend's consulting-room, or would be, if he ever prescribed, his sanctum, his studio, said my guardian to us. Yes, said Mr. Skimpole, turning his bright face about. This is the bird's cage. This is where the bird lives and sings. 
they pluck his feathers now and then and clip his wings but he sings he sings he handed us the grapes repeating in his radiant way he sings not an ambitious note but still he sings these are very fine said my guardian a present no he answered no some amiable gardener sells them his man wanted to know when he brought them last evening whether he should wait for the money really my friend i said i think not if your time is of any value to you i suppose it was for he went away my guardian looked at us with a smile as though he asked us is it possible to be worldly with this baby this is a day said mr skimpole gaily taking a little claret in a tumbler that will ever be remembered here we shall call it st clair and st summerson day you must see my daughters i have a blue-eyed daughter who is my beauty daughter i have a sentiment daughter and i have a comedy daughter you must see them all they'll be enchanted he was going to summon them when my guardian interposed and asked him to pause a moment as he wished to say a word to him first my dear jarndyce he cheerfully replied going back to his sofa as many moments as you please time is no object here we never know what o'clock it is and we never care not the way to get on in life you'll tell me certainly but we don't get on in life we don't pretend to do it my guardian looked at us again plainly saying you hear him now harold he began the word i have to say relates to rick ah oh, the dearest friend i have returned mr skimpole cordially i suppose he ought not to be my dearest friend as he is not on terms with you but he is i can't help it he is full of youthful poetry and i love him if you don't like it i can't help it i love him the engaging frankness with which he made this declaration really had a disinterested appearance and captivated my guardian if not for the moment ada too you are welcome to love him as much as you like returned mr jarndyce but we must save his pocket harold oh said mr skimpole his pocket now you are coming to what i don't understand taking a little more claret and dipping one of the cakes in it he shook his head and smiled at ada and me with an ingenuous foreboding that he never could be made to understand if you go with him here or there said my guardian plainly you must not let him pay for both my dear jarndyce returned mr skimpole his genial face irradiated by the comicality of this idea what am i to do if he takes me anywhere i must go and how can i pay i never have any money if i had any money i don't know anything about it suppose i say to a man how much suppose the man says to me seven and sixpence i know nothing about seven and sixpence 
it is impossible for me to pursue the subject with any consideration for the man. I don't go about asking busy people what seven and sixpence is in Moorish, which I don't understand. Why should I go about asking them what seven and sixpence is in money, which I don't understand?' "'Well,' said my guardian, by no means displeased with this artless reply, "'if you come to any kind of journeying with Rick, you must borrow the money of me.' never breathing the least allusion to that circumstance, and leave the calculation to him. "'My dear Jarndyce,' returned Mr. Skimpole, "'I will do anything to give you pleasure. But it seems an idle form, a superstition. Besides, I give you my word, Miss Clare and my dear Miss Summerson, I thought Mr. Carstone was immensely rich.' I thought he had only to make over something, or to sign a bond, or a draft, or a cheque, or a bill, or to put something on a file somewhere, to bring down a shower of money. "'Indeed, it is not so, sir,' said Ada. "'He is poor.' "'No, really?' returned Mr. Skimpole, with his bright smile. "'You surprise me.' "'And not being the richer for trusting in a rotten reed,' said my guardian, laying his hand emphatically on the sleeve of Mr. Skimpole's dressing-gown. "'Be you very careful not to encourage him in that reliance, Harold.' "'My dear good friend,' returned Mr. Skimpole, "'and my dear Miss Summerson, and my dear miss clare how can i do that it's business and i don't know business it is he who encourages me he emerges from great fates of business presents the brightest prospects before me as their result and calls upon me to admire them i do admire them as bright prospects but i know no more about them and i tell him so the helpless kind of candour with which he presented this before us the light-hearted manner in which he was amused by his innocence the fantastic way in which he took himself under his own protection and argued about that curious person combined with the delightful ease of everything he said exactly to make out my guardian's case the more i saw of him the more unlikely it seemed to me when he was present that he could design, conceal, or influence anything, and yet the less likely that appeared when he was not present, and the less agreeable it was to think of his having anything to do with any one for whom I cared. Hearing that his examination, as he called it, was now over, Mr. Skimpole left the room with a radiant face to fetch his daughters. His sons had run away at various times." leaving my guardian quite delighted by the manner in which he had vindicated his childish character he soon came back bringing with him the three young ladies and mrs skimpole who had once been a beauty but was now a delicate high-nosed invalid suffering under a complication of disorders this said mr skimpole is my beauty daughter arethusa plays and sings odds and ends like her father this is my sentiment daughter laura plays a little but don't sing this is my comedy daughter kitty sings a little but don't play we all draw a little and compose a little 
and none of us have any idea of time or money. Mrs. Skimpole sighed, I thought, as if she would have been glad to strike out this item in the family attainments. I also thought that she rather impressed her sigh upon my guardian, and that she took every opportunity of throwing in another. "'It is pleasant,' said Mr. Skimpole, turning his sprightly eyes from one to the other of us, "'and it is whimsically interesting to trace peculiarities in families. In this family we are all children.' and I am the youngest." The daughters, who appeared to be very fond of him, were amused by this droll fact, particularly the comedy daughter. "'My dears, it is true,' said Mr. Skimpole. "'Is it not?' "'So it is, and so it must be, because, like the dogs in the hymn, it is our nature to. Now, here is Miss Summerson, with a fine administrative capacity, and a knowledge of details perfectly surprising. It will sound very strange in Miss Summerson's ears, I dare say, that we know nothing about chops in this house. But we don't. Not the least. We can't cook anything whatever. A needle and thread we don't know how to use. We admire the people who possess the practical wisdom we want, but we don't quarrel with them. Then why should they quarrel with us? Live and let live, we say to them. Live upon your practical wisdom, and let us live upon you." He laughed, but as usual seemed quite candid, and really to mean what he said. "'We have sympathy, my roses,' said Mr. Skimpole. "'Sympathy for everything, have we not?' "'Oh, yes, papa,' cried the three daughters. "'In fact, that is our family department,' said Mr. Skimpole. "'In this hurly-burly of life we are capable of looking on, and of being interested, and we do look on, and we are interested. What more can we do? Here is my beauty daughter, married these three years. Now I dare say her marrying another child, and having two more, was all wrong in point of political economy, but it was very agreeable. We had our little festivities on those occasions, and exchanged social ideas. She brought her young husband home one day, and they and their young fledglings have their nest upstairs. I dare say, at some time or other, sentiment and comedy will bring their husbands home, and have their nests upstairs too. So we get on. We don't know how but somehow. She looked very young indeed to be the mother of two children, and I could not help pitying both her and them. It was evident that the three daughters had grown up as they could, and had had just as little haphazard instruction as qualified them to be their father's playthings in his idlest hours. His pictorial tastes were consulted, I observed, in their respective styles of wearing their hair the beauty daughter being in the classic manner, the sentiment daughter luxuriant and flowing, and the comedy daughter in the arch style, with a good deal of sprightly forehead and vivacious little curls dotted about the corners of her eyes. They were dressed to correspond, though in a most untidy and negligent way. Ada and I conversed with these young ladies, and found them wonderfully like their father. In the meanwhile, Mr. Jarndyce, who had been rubbing his head to a great extent, and hinted at a change in the wind, talked with Mrs. Skimpole in a corner, 
where we could not help hearing the chink of money. Mr. Skimpole had previously volunteered to go home with us, and had withdrawn to dress himself for the purpose. "'My roses,' he said when he came back, "'take care of Mamma. She is poorly to-day. By going home with Mr. Jarndyce for a day or two, I shall hear the larks sing and preserve my amiability. It has been tried, you know, and would be tried again if I remained at home.' "'That bad man,' said the comedy daughter, "'at the very time when he knew Papa was lying ill by his wallflowers, looking at the blue sky,' Laura complained. "'And when the smell of hay was in the air,' said Arethusa. "'It showed a want of poetry in the man,' Mr. Skimpole assented, but with perfect good humour. "'It was coarse.' There was an absence of the finer touches of humanity in it. My daughters have taken great offence, he explained to us, at an honest man. Not honest, papa, impossible, they all three protested. At a rough kind of fellow, a sort of human hedgehog rolled up, said Mr. Skimpole, who is a baker in this neighbourhood, and from whom we borrowed a couple of armchairs. We wanted a couple of armchairs, and we hadn't got them, and therefore, of course, we looked to a man who had got them, to lend them. Well, this morose person lent them, and we wore them out. When they were worn out, he wanted them back. He had them back. He was contented, you will say. Not at all. He objected to their being worn. I reasoned with him and pointed out his mistake. I said, Can you, at your time of life, be so headstrong, my friend, as to persist that an armchair is a thing to put upon a shelf and look at, that it is an object to contemplate, to survey from a distance, to consider from a point of sight? Don't you know that these armchairs were borrowed to be sat upon? He was unreasonable and unpersuadable, and used intemperate language. Being as patient as I am at this minute, I addressed another appeal to him. I said, Now, my good man, however our business capacities may vary, we are all children of one great mother, nature. On this blooming summer morning, here you see me, I was on the sofa, with flowers before me, fruit upon the table, the cloudless sky above me, the air full of fragrance, contemplating nature. I entreat you, by our common brotherhood, not to interpose between me and a subject so sublime, the absurd figure of an angry baker. But he did, said Mr. Skimpole, raising his laughing eyes in playful astonishment. He did interpose that ridiculous figure, and he does, and he will again. And therefore I am very glad to get out of his way, and to go home with my friend Jarndyce. It seemed to escape his consideration that Mrs. Skimpole and the daughters remained behind to encounter the baker, but this was so old a story to all of them that it had become a matter of course. He took leave of his family with a tenderness as airy and graceful as any other aspect in which he showed himself, and rode away with us in perfect harmony of mind. We had an opportunity of seeing through some open doors, as we went downstairs, 
that his own apartment was a palace to the rest of the house. I could have no anticipation, and I had none, that something very startling to me at the moment, and ever memorable to me in what ensued from it, was to happen before this day was out. Our guest was in such spirits on the way home that I could do nothing but listen to him, and wonder at him. Nor was I alone in this, for Ada yielded to the same fascination. As to my guardian, the wind, which had threatened to become fixed in the east when we left Summers Town, veered completely round before we were a couple of miles from it. Whether of questionable childishness or not in any other matters, Mr. Skimpole had a child's enjoyment of change and bright weather. In no way wearied by his sallies on the road, he was in the drawing-room before any of us, and I heard him at the piano, while I was yet looking after my housekeeping singing refrains of barcarolles and drinking-songs, Italian and German, by the score. We were all assembled shortly before dinner, and he was still at the piano, idly picking out in his luxurious way little strains of music, and talking between whiles of finishing some sketches of the ruined old Verulam wall to-morrow, which he had begun a year or two ago, and had got tired of, when a card was brought in, and my guardian read aloud in a surprised voice, "'Sir Lester Dedlock?' The visitor was in the room, while it was yet turning round with me, and before I had the power to stir. If I had had it, I should have hurried away. I had not even the presence of mind in my giddiness to retire to Ada in the window, or to see the window, or to know where it was. I heard my name, and found that my guardian was presenting me before I could move to a chair. "'Pray be seated, Sir Leicester.' "'Mr. Jarndyce,' said Sir Leicester in reply, as he bowed and seated himself, "'I do myself the honour of calling here.' "'You do me the honour, Sir Leicester.' "'Thank you. Of calling here, on my road from Lincolnshire, to express my regret that any cause of complaint—' however strong that I may have against a gentleman who, who is known to you, and has been your host, and to whom, therefore, I will make no farther reference, should have prevented you, still more ladies under your escort and charge, from seeing whatever little there may be to gratify a polite and refined taste at my house, Chesney Wold. "'You are exceedingly obliging, Sir Leicester, and on behalf of those ladies who are present, and for myself, I thank you very much.' "'It is possible, Mr. Jarndyce, that the gentleman to whom, for the reasons I have mentioned, I refrain from making further allusion, it is possible, Mr. Jarndyce, that that gentleman may have done me the honour so far to misapprehend my character, as to induce you to believe that you would not have been received by my local establishment in Lincolnshire without urbanity, that courtesy, which its members are instructed to show to all ladies and gentlemen who present themselves at that house. I merely beg to observe, sir, that the fact is the reverse." My guardian delicately dismissed this remark, without making any verbal answer. "'It has given me pain, Mr. Jarndyce," 
Sir Leicester weightily proceeded, "'I assure you, sir, it has given me pain to learn from the housekeeper at Chesney World that a gentleman who was in your company at that part of the county, and who would appear to possess a cultivated taste for the fine arts, was likewise deterred by some such cause from examining the family pictures with that leisure, that attention, that care, which he might have desired to bestow upon them, and which some of them might possibly have repaid. Here he produced a card, and read, with much gravity and a little trouble, through his eyeglass. "'Mr. Harold—Harold—Harold Skimpling—Skimpling. I beg your pardon. Skimpole.' "'This is Mr. Harold Skimpole,' said my guardian, evidently surprised. "'Oh!' exclaimed Sir Leicester. I am happy to meet Mr. Skimpole, and to have the opportunity of tendering my personal regrets. I hope, sir, that when you again find yourself in my part of the county, you will be under no similar sense of restraint. You are very obliging, Sir Lester Dedlock. So encouraged, I shall certainly give myself the pleasure and advantage of another visit to your beautiful house. The owners of such a place as Chesney Wold, said Mr. Skimpole, with his usual happy and easy air, are public benefactors. They are good enough to maintain a number of delightful objects for the admiration and pleasure of us poor men, and not to reap all the admiration and pleasure that they yield is to be ungrateful to our benefactors. Sir Leicester seemed to approve of this sentiment highly. "'An artist, sir?' "'No,' returned Mr. Skimpole. "'A perfectly idle man, a mere amateur.' Sir Leicester seemed to approve of this even more. He hoped he might have the good fortune to be at Chesney Wold when Mr. Skimpole next came down into Lincolnshire. Mr. Skimpole professed himself much flattered and honoured. "'Mr. Skimpole mentioned,' pursued Sir Leicester, addressing himself again to my guardian, "'mentioned to the housekeeper, who, as he may have observed, is an old and attached retainer of the family.' That is, when I walked through the house the other day, on the occasion of my going down to visit Miss Summerson and Miss Clare, Mr. Skimpole airily explained to us, that the friend with whom he had formerly been staying there was Mr. Jarndyce, Sir Leicester bowed to the bearer of that name, and hence I became aware of the circumstances for which I have professed my regret. That this should have occurred to any gentleman, Mr. Jarndyce, but especially a gentleman formerly known to Lady Dedlock, and indeed claiming some distant connection with her, and for whom, as I learn from my lady herself, she entertains a high respect, does, I assure you, give me pain." "'Pray say no more about it, Sir Leicester,' returned my guardian. "'I am very sensible, as I am sure we all are, of your consideration, 
Indeed, the mistake was mine, and I ought to apologise for it. I had not once looked up. I had not seen the visitor, and had not even appeared to myself to hear the conversation. It surprises me to find that I can recall it, for it seemed to make no impression on me as it passed. I heard them speaking, but my mind was so confused, and my instinctive avoidance of this gentleman made his presence so distressing to me, that I thought I understood nothing, through the rushing in my head and the beating of my heart. "'I mentioned the subject to Lady Dedlock,' said Sir Leicester, rising, "'and my lady informed me that she had had the pleasure of exchanging a few words with Mr. John Dice and his wards on the occasion of an accidental meeting during their sojourn in the vicinity. Permit me, Mr. John Dice, to repeat to yourself and to these ladies the assurance I have already attended to Mr. Skimpole. Circumstances undoubtedly prevent my saying that it would afford me any gratification to hear that Mr. Boythorn had favoured my house with his presence, but those circumstances are confined to that gentleman himself, and do not extend beyond him. You know my old opinion of him, said Mr. Skimpole, lightly appealing to us, an amiable bull who is determined to make every colour scarlet. Sir Lester Dedlock coughed, as if he could not possibly hear another word in reference to such an individual, and took his leave with great ceremony and politeness. I got to my own room with all possible speed, and remained there until I had recovered my self-command. It had been very much disturbed but I was thankful to find when I went downstairs again that they only rallied me for having been shy and mute before the great Lincolnshire baronet. By that time I had made up my mind that the period was come when I must tell my guardian what I knew. The possibility of my being brought into contact with my mother, of my being taken to her house, even of Mr. Skimpole's, however distantly associated with me, receiving kindnesses and obligations from her husband, was so painful that I felt I could no longer guide myself without his assistance. When we had retired for the night, and Ada and I had had our usual talk in our pretty room, I went out at my door again, and sought my guardian among his books. I knew he always read at that hour, and as I drew near, I saw the light shining out into the passage from his reading-lamp. "'May I come in, guardian?' "'Surely, little woman!' "'What's the matter?' "'Nothing is the matter. "'I thought I would like to take this quiet time "'of saying a word to you about myself.' "'He put a chair for me, shut his book, and put it by, "'and turned his kind, attentive face towards me. "'I could not help observing that it wore that curious expression "'I had observed in it once before, "'on that night when he had said that he was in no trouble, "'which I could readily understand.' "'What concerns you, my dear Esther?' said he. "'Concerns us all. You cannot be more ready to speak than I am to hear.' "'I know that, guardian. But I have such a need of your advice and support. Oh, you don't know how much need I have to-night.' He looked unprepared for my being so earnest, and even a little alarmed. 
or how anxious I have been to speak to you,' said I, "'ever since the visitor was here to-day.' "'The visitor, my dear? Sir Lester Dedlock?' "'Yes.' He folded his arms, and sat looking at me with an air of the profoundest astonishment, awaiting what I should say next. I did not know how to prepare him. "'Why, Esther,' said he, breaking into a smile, "'our visitor and you are the two last persons on earth I should have thought of connecting together.' "'Oh, yes, guardian, I know it, and I too, but a little while ago.' The smile passed from his face, and he became graver than before. He crossed to the door to see that it was shut, but I had seen to that, and resumed his seat before me. "'Guardian,' said I, "'do you remember, when we were overtaken by the thunderstorm, Lady Dedlock's speaking to you of her sister?' "'Of course, of course I do.' "'And reminding you that she and her sister had differed, had gone their several ways?' "'Of course.' "'Why did they separate, guardian?' His face quite altered as he looked at me. "'My child, what questions are these? I never knew. No one but themselves ever did know, I believe. Who could tell what the secrets of those two handsome and proud women were? You have seen Lady Dedlock? If you had ever seen her sister, you would know her to have been as resolute and haughty as she. Oh, guardian, I have seen her many and many a time. Seen her? He paused a little, biting his lip. Then, Esther, when you spoke to me long ago of Boythorn, and when I told you that he was all but married once, and that the lady did not die, but died to him, and at that time had had its influence on his later life, did you know it all, and know who the lady was? No, guardian, I returned, fearful of the light that dimly broke upon me, nor do I know yet. Lady Dedlock's sister. And why? I could scarcely ask him. Why, guardian? Pray tell me, why were they parted? It was her act, and she kept its motives in her inflexible heart. He afterwards did conjecture, but it was mere conjecture, that some injury which her haughty spirit had received in her cause of quarrel with her sister had wounded her beyond all reason. But she wrote him that from the date of that letter she died to him, as in literal truth she did and that the resolution was exacted from her by her knowledge of his proud temper and his strained sense of honour, which were both her nature too. In consideration for those master points in him, and even in consideration for them in herself, she made the sacrifice, she said, and would live in it and die in it. She did both, I fear. Certainly he never saw her, never heard of her from that hour, nor did any one. "'Oh, guardian, what have I done?' I cried, giving way to my grief. "'What sorrow have I innocently caused?' "'You caused, Esther?' 
"'Yes, guardian, innocently, but most surely. "'That secluded sister is my first remembrance.' "'No, no!' he cried, starting. "'Yes, guardian, yes, and her sister is my mother.' I would have told him all my mother's letter, but he would not hear it then. He spoke so tenderly and wisely to me, and he put so plainly before me, all I had myself imperfectly thought, and hoped in my better state of mind, that, penetrated as I had been with fervent gratitude towards him through so many years, I believed I had never loved him so dearly, never thanked him in my heart so fully as I did that night. And when he had taken me to my room, and kissed me at the door, and when at last I lay down to sleep, my thought was how could I ever be busy enough, how could I ever be good enough, how in my little way could I ever hope to be forgetful enough of myself, devoted enough to him, and useful enough to others, to show him how I blessed and honoured him. End of chapter 43 Chapter forty four of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty four. The letter and the answer. My guardian called me into his room next morning, and then I told him what had been left untold on the previous night. There was nothing to be done, he said, but to keep the secret and to avoid another such encounter as that of yesterday. He understood my feeling and entirely shared it. He charged himself even with restraining Mr. Skimpole from improving his opportunity. One person whom he need not name to me, it was not now possible for him to advise or help. He wished it were, but no such thing could be. If her mistrust of the lawyer whom she had mentioned were well founded, which he scarcely doubted, he dreaded discovery. He knew something of him, both by sight and by reputation, and it was certain that he was a dangerous man. Whatever happened, he repeatedly impressed upon me, with anxious affection and kindness, I was as innocent of as himself, and as unable to influence. "'Nor do I understand,' said he, "'that any doubts tend towards you, my dear. Much suspicion may exist without that connection.' with the lawyer, I returned. But two other persons have come into my mind since I have been anxious. Then I told him all about Mr. Guppy, who I feared might have had his vague surmises when I little understood his meaning, but in whose silence after our last interview I expressed perfect confidence. "'Well,' said my guardian, "'then we may dismiss him for the present. Who is the other?' I called to his recollection the French maid, and the eager offer of herself she had made to me. "'Ha!' he returned thoughtfully. "'That is a more alarming person than the clerk. But after all, my dear, it was but seeking for a new service. She had seen you and Ada a little while before, and it was natural that you should come into her head. 
She merely proposed herself for your maid, you know. She did nothing more. Her manner was strange, said I. Yes, and her manner was strange when she took her shoes off, and showed that cool relish for a walk that might have ended in her deathbed, said my guardian. It would be useless, self-distress, and torment to reckon up such chances and possibilities. There are very few harmless circumstances that would not seem full of perilous meaning so considered. Be hopeful, little woman. You can be nothing better than yourself. Be that, through this knowledge, as you were before you had it. It is the best you can do for everybody's sake. I, sharing the secret with you. "'And lightening it, guardian, so much,' said I, "'will be attentive to what passes in that family, "'so far as I can observe it from my distance. "'And if the time should come when I can stretch out a hand "'to render the least service to one whom it is better not to name even here, "'I will not fail to do it for her dear daughter's sake.' "'I thanked him with my whole heart,' What could I ever do but thank him? I was going out at the door when he asked me to stay a moment. Quickly turning round, I saw that same expression on his face again, and all at once, I don't know how, it flashed upon me as a new and far-off possibility that I understood it. "'My dear Esther,' said my guardian, "'I have long had something in my thoughts that I have wished to say to you. Indeed. I have had some difficulty in approaching it, and I still have. I should wish it to be so deliberately said, and so deliberately considered. Would you object to my writing it? Dear guardian, how could I object to your writing anything for me to read? Then see, my love, said he, with his cheery smile, am I at this moment quite as plain and easy? Do I seem as open, as honest and old-fashioned, as I am at any other time? I answered in all earnestness, quite, with the strictest truth, for his momentary hesitation was gone, it had not lasted a minute, and his fine, sensible, cordial, sterling manner was restored. Do I look as if I suppressed anything? "'Meant anything but what I said? "'Had any reservation at all, no matter what?' "'said he, with his bright clear eyes on mine. "'I answered most assuredly he did not. "'Can you fully trust me, "'and thoroughly rely on what I profess, Esther?' "'Most thoroughly,' said I, with my whole heart. "'My dear girl,' returned my guardian, "'give me your hand.' He took it in his, holding me lightly with his arm, and looking down into my face, with the same genuine freshness and faithfulness of manner, the old protecting manner, which had made that house my home in a moment, said, "'You have wrought changes in me, little woman, since the winter day in the stage-coach. First and last, you have done me a world of good since that time.' "'Ah, oh, guardian!' "'What have you done for me since that time?' "'But,' said he, "'that is not to be remembered now.' "'It never can be forgotten.' "'Yes, Esther,' said he, with a gentle seriousness, "'it is to be forgotten now. 
to be forgotten for a while. You are only to remember now that nothing can change me as you know me. Can you feel quite assured of that, my dear?' "'I can, and I do,' I said. "'That's much,' he answered. "'That's everything. But I must not take that at a word. I will not write this something in my thoughts until you have quite resolved within yourself that nothing can change me as you know me. If you doubt that in the least degree, I will never write it. If you are sure of that, on good consideration, send Charlie to me this night week for the letter. But if you are not quite certain, never send. Mind, I trust to your truth in this thing as in everything. If you are not quite certain on that one point, never send. Guardian, said I, I am certain already I can no more be changed in that conviction than you can be changed towards me. I shall send Charlie for the letter. He shook my hand and said no more. Nor was any more said in reference to this conversation, either by him or me, through the whole week. When the appointed night came, I said to Charlie, as soon as I was alone, "'Go and knock at Mr. John Dice's door, Charlie, and say you have come for me for the letter.' Charlie went up the stairs and down the stairs, and along the passages. The zigzag way about the old-fashioned house seemed very long in my listening ears that night and so came back along the passages and down the stairs and up the stairs and brought the letter lay it on the table charlie said i so charlie laid it on the table and went to bed and i sat looking at it without taking it up thinking of many things i began with my overshadowed childhood and passed through those timid days to the heavy time when my aunt lay dead with her resolute face so cold and set, and when I was more solitary with Mrs. Rachel than if I had had no one in the world to speak to or to look at, I passed to the altered days when I was so blessed as to find friends in all around me, and to be beloved. I came to the time when I first saw my dear girl, and was received into that sisterly affection which was the grace and beauty of my life. I recalled the first bright gleam of welcome which had shone out of those very windows upon our expectant faces on that cold bright night, and which had never paled. I lived my happy life there over again. I went through my illness and recovery. I thought of myself so altered, and of those around me so unchanged, and all this happiness shone like a light from one central figure, represented before me by the letter on the table. I opened it and read it. It was so impressive in its love for me, and in the unselfish caution it gave me, and the consideration it showed for me in every word, that my eyes were too often blinded to read much at a time. But I read it through three times before I laid it down. I had thought beforehand that I knew its purport, and I did. It asked me, would I be the mistress of Bleak House? It was not a love-letter, though it expressed so much love, but was written just as he would at any time have spoken to me. I saw his face, and heard his voice, and felt the influence of his kind, protecting manner in every line. It addressed me as if our places were reversed, 
as if all the good deeds had been mine, and all the feelings they had awakened his. It dwelt on my being young, and he passed the prime of life, on his having attained a ripe age while I was a child, on his writing to me with a silvered head, and knowing all this so well, as to set it in full before me for mature deliberation. It told me that I would gain nothing by such a marriage, and lose nothing by rejecting it, for no new relation could enhance the tenderness in which he held me, and whatever my decision was, he was certain it would be right. But he had considered this step anew since our late confidence, and had decided on taking it, if it only served to show me, through one poor instance, that the whole world would readily unite to falsify the stern prediction of my childhood. I was the last to know what happiness I could bestow upon him, but of that he said no more, for I was always to remember that I owed him nothing, and that he was my debtor, and for very much. He had often thought of our future, and foreseeing that the time must come, and fearing that it might come soon, when Ada, now very nearly of age, would leave us, and when our present mode of life must be broken up, had become accustomed to reflect on this proposal. Thus he made it. If I felt that I could ever give him the best right he could have to be my protector, and if I felt that I could happily and justly become the dear companion of his remaining life, superior to all lighter chances and changes than death, even then he could not have me bind myself irrevocably while this letter was yet so new to me, but even then I must have ample time for reconsideration. In that case, or in the opposite case, let him be unchanged in his old relation, in his old manner, in the old name by which I called him. And as to his bright Dame Durden, and little housekeeper, she would ever be the same, he knew. This was the substance of the letter, written throughout with a justice and a dignity, as if he were indeed my responsible guardian, impartially representing the proposal of a friend against whom, in his integrity, he stated the full case. But he did not hint to me that when I had been better looking, he had had this same proceeding in his thoughts, and had refrained from it, that when my old face was gone from me, and I had no attractions, he could love me just as well as in my fairer days, that the discovery of my birth gave him no shock, that his generosity rose above my disfigurement and my inheritance of shame, that the more I stood in need of such fidelity, the more firmly I might trust in him to the last. But I knew it. I knew it well now. It came upon me as the close of the benignant history I had been pursuing, and I felt that I had but one thing to do. To devote my life to his happiness was to thank him poorly, and what had I wished for the other night but some new means of thanking him? Still, I cried very much, not only in the fullness of my heart after reading the letter, not only in the strangeness of the prospect, for it was strange, though I had expected the contents, but as if something, for which there was no name or distinct idea, were indefinitely lost to me. I was very happy, very thankful, very hopeful, but I cried very much. By and by I went to my old glass. My eyes were red and swollen, and I said, "'Oh, Esther, Esther, can that be you?' 
I am afraid the face in the glass was going to cry again at this reproach, but I held up my finger at it, and it stopped. "'That is more like the composed look you comforted me with, my dear, when you showed me such a change,' said I, beginning to let down my hair. "'When you are mistress of Bleak House, you are to be as cheerful as a bird. In fact, you are always to be cheerful. So let us begin for once and for all.' I went on with my hair now, quite comfortably. I sobbed a little still, but that was because I had been crying, not because I was crying then. "'And so, Esther, my dear, you are happy for life. Happy with your best friends, happy in your old home, happy in the power of doing a great deal of good, and happy in the undeserved love of the best of men.' I thought, all at once, if my guardian had married someone else, how should I have felt? and what should I have done? That would have been a change, indeed. It presented my life in such a new and blank form that I rang my housekeeping keys and gave them a kiss before I laid them down in their basket again. Then I went on to think, as I dressed my hair before the glass, how often had I considered within myself that the deep traces of my illness and the circumstances of my birth were only new reasons why I should be busy, 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 useful, amiable, serviceable, in all honest, unpretending ways. This was a good time, to be sure, to sit down morbidly and cry. As to it seeming at all strange to me at first, if that were any excuse for crying, which it was not, that I was one day to be the mistress of Bleak House. Why should it seem strange? Other people had thought of such things, if I had not. Don't you remember, my plain dear? I asked myself, looking at the glass, what Mrs. Woodcourt said, before those scars were there about your marrying. Perhaps the name brought them to my remembrance. The dried remains of the flowers. It would be better not to keep them now. They had only been preserved in memory of something wholly past and gone, but it would be better not to keep them now. They were in a book, and it happened to be in the next room our sitting-room dividing Ada's chamber from mine, I took a candle and went softly in to fetch it from its shelf. After I had it in my hand, I saw my beautiful darling through the open door, lying asleep, and I stole in to kiss her. It was weak in me, I know, and I could have no reason for crying, but I dropped a tear upon her dear face, and another, and another. Weaker than that, I took the withered flowers out, and put them for a moment to her lips. I thought about her love for Richard, though, indeed, the flowers had nothing to do with that. Then I took them into my own room, and burnt them at the candle, and they were dust in an instant. On entering the breakfast-room next morning, I found my guardian just as usual, quite as frank, as open, and free there being not the least constraint in his manner there was none or i think there was none in mine i was with him several times in the course of the morning in and out when there was no one there and i thought it not unlikely that he might speak to me about the letter but he did not say a word so on the next morning and the next and for at least a week over which time mr skimpole prolonged his stay i expected every day that my guardian might speak to me about the letter but he never did. I thought then, growing uneasy, 
that I ought to write an answer. I tried over and over again in my own room at night, but I could not write an answer that had all began like a good answer, so I thought each night I would wait one more day. And I waited seven more days, and he never said a word. At last, Mr. Skimpole having departed, we three were one afternoon going out for a ride, and I, being dressed before Ada, and going down, came upon my guardian with his back towards me, standing at the drawing-room window looking out. He turned on my coming in, and said, smiling, "'Ah, it's you, little woman, is it?' and looked out again. I had made up my mind to speak to him now. In short, I had come down on purpose. "'Guardian,' I said, rather hesitating and trembling, "'when would you like to have the answer to the letter Charlie came for?' "'When it's ready, my dear,' he replied. "'I think it is ready,' said I. "'Is Charlie to bring it?' he asked pleasantly. "'No. I have brought it myself, guardian,' I returned. I put my two arms round his neck and kissed him, and he said, "'Was this the mistress of Bleak House?' And I said, "'Yes. And it made no difference presently. And we all went out together, and I said nothing to my precious pet about it.'" End of chapter 44 Chapter forty five of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty five. In Trust. One morning, when I had done jingling about with my basket of keys, as my beauty and I were walking round and round the garden, I happened to turn my eyes towards the house and saw a long thin shadow going in which looked like mr vole's ada had been telling me only that morning of her hopes that richard might exhaust his ardour in the chancery suit by being so very earnest in it and therefore not to damp my dear girl's spirits i said nothing about mr vole's shadow presently came charlie lightly winding among the bushes and tripping along the paths, as rosy and pretty as one of Flora's attendants, instead of my maid, saying, "'Oh, if you please, miss, would you step and speak to Mr. Jarndyce?' It was one of Charlie's peculiarities that whenever she was charged with a message, she always began to deliver it as soon as she beheld, at any distance, the person for whom it was intended. Therefore I saw Charlie asking me in her usual form of words to step and speak to Mr. Jarndyce long before I heard her, and when I did hear her she had said it so often that she was out of breath. I told Ada I would make haste back, and inquired of Charlie, as we went in, whether there was not a gentleman with Mr. Jarndyce, to which Charlie, whose grammar I confessed to my shame, never did any credit to my educational powers, replied, "'Yes, miss, he must come down in the country with Mr. Richard.' A more complete contrast than my guardian and Mr. Vole's, I suppose they could not be. I found them looking at one another across the table, the one so open and the other so close, the one so broad and upright, and the other so narrow and stooping, 
the one giving out what he had to say in such a rich ringing voice, and the other keeping it in in such a cold-blooded, gasping, fish-like manner, that I thought I never had seen two people so unmatched. "'You know Mr. Vowles, my dear,' said my guardian, not with the greatest urbanity, I must say. Mr. Vowles rose, gloved and buttoned up as usual, and seated himself again, just as he had seated himself beside Richard in the gig. Not having Richard to look at, he looked straight before him. "'Mr. Vowles,' said my guardian, eyeing his black figure as if he were a bird of ill omen, "'has brought an ugly report of our most unfortunate Rick.' Laying a marked emphasis on most unfortunate, as if the words were rather descriptive of his connection with Mr. Vowles. I sat down between them. Mr. Vowles remained immovable, except that he secretly picked at one of the red pimples on his yellow face with his black glove. "'And, as Rick and you are happily good friends, I should like to know,' said my guardian, "'what you think, my dear. Would you be so good as to—as to, as to speak up, Mr. Vowles?' doing anything but that, Mr. Vowles observed, "'I have been saying that I have reason to know Miss Summerson as Mr. C.'s professional adviser that Mr. C.'s circumstances are at the present moment in an embarrassed state, not so much in point of amount as owing to the peculiar and pressing nature of liabilities Mr. C. has incurred and the means he has of liquidating or meeting the same.' I have staved off many little matters for Mr. C., but there is a limit to staving off, and we have reached it. I have made some advances out of pocket to accommodate these unpleasantnesses, but I necessarily look to being repaid, for I do not pretend to be a man of capital, and I have a father to support in the Vale of Taunton, besides striving to realise some little independence for three dear girls at home. My apprehension is— Mr. C.'s circumstances being such, lest it should end in his obtaining leave to part with his commission, which at all events is desirable to be made known to his connections. Mr. Vowles, who had looked at me while speaking, here emerged into the silence he could hardly be said to have broken, so stifled was his tone, and looked before him again. "'Imagine the poor fellow, without even his present resource,' said my guardian to me. Yet, what can I do? You know him, Esther. He would never accept of help from me now. To offer it or hint at it would be to drive him to an extremity if nothing else did. Mr. Vowles hereupon addressed me again. What Mr. Jarndyce remarks, miss, is no doubt the case and is the difficulty. I do not see that anything is to be done. I do not say that anything is to be done. Far from it, I merely come down here under the seal of confidence and mention it, in order that everything may be openly carried on, and that it may not be said afterwards that everything was not openly carried on. My wish is that everything should be openly carried on. I desire to leave a good name behind me. If I consulted merely my own interests with Mr. C., I should not be here. So insurmountable, as you must well know, would be his objections. This is not a professional attendance. This can be charged to nobody. I have no interest in it except as a member of society and a father and a son, said Mr. Vowles, who had nearly forgotten that point. It appeared to us that Mr. Vowles said neither more nor less than the truth, in intimating that he sought to divide the responsibility, such as it was, of knowing Richard's situation. 
I could only suggest that I should go down to Deal, where Richard was, then stationed, and see him, and try, if it were possible, to avert the worst. Without consulting Mr. Vholes on this point, I took my guardian aside to propose it, while Mr. Vholes gauntly stalked to the fire and warmed his funeral gloves. The fatigue of the journey formed an immediate objection on my guardian's part, but as I saw he had no other, and as I was only too happy to go, I got his consent. We had then merely to dispose of Mr. Vholes. "'Well, sir,' said Mr. Jarndyce, "'Miss Summerson will communicate with Mr. Carstone, and you can only hope that his position may be yet retrievable. You will allow me to order you lunch after your journey, sir?' "'I thank you, Mr. Jarndyce,' said Mr. Vholes, putting out his long black sleeve to check the ringing of the bell. "'Not any, I thank you, no, not a morsel. My digestion is much impaired, and I am but a poor knife and fork at any time. If I was to partake of solid food at this period of the day, I don't know what the consequences might be. Everything having been openly carried on, sir, I will now, with your permission, take my leave.' "'And I would that you could take your leave, and we could all take our leave, Mr. Vholes,' returned my guardian bitterly, "'of a cause you know of.' Mr. Vholes, whose black dye was so deep from head to foot that it had quite steamed before the fire, diffusing a very unpleasant perfume, made a short, one-sided inclination of his head from the neck, and slowly shook it. "'We, whose ambition it is to be looked upon in the light of respectable practitioners, sir, can but put our shoulders to the wheel. We do it, sir, at least I do it myself, and I wish to think well of my professional brethren, one and all. You are sensible of an obligation not to refer to me, miss, in communicating with Mr. C.' "'I said I would be careful not to do it.' "'Just so, miss. Good morning, Mr. Jarndyce. Good morning, sir.' Mr. Vholes put his dead glove, which scarcely seemed to have any hand in it, on my fingers, and then on my guardian's fingers, and took his long, thin shadow away. I thought of it on the outside of the coach, passing over all the sunny landscape between us and London, chilling the seed in the ground as it glided along. Of course it became necessary to tell Ada where I was going, and why I was going, and of course she was anxious and distressed but she was too true to richard to say anything but words of pity and words of excuse and in a more loving spirit still my dear devoted girl she wrote him a long letter of which i took charge charlie was to be my travelling companion though i am sure i wanted none and would willingly have left her at home we all went to london that afternoon and finding two places in the mail secured them at our usual bedtime charlie and i were rolling away seaward with the kentish letters it was a night's journey in those coach times but we had the mail to ourselves and did not find the night very tedious it passed with me as i suppose it would with most people under such circumstances at one while my journey looked hopeful and at another hopeless now i thought i should do some good and now i wondered how i could ever have supposed so now it seemed one of the most reasonable things in the world that i should have come and now one of the most unreasonable in what state i should find richard what i should say to him and what he would say to me occupied my mind by turns with these two states of feeling and the wheels seemed to play one tune to which the burden of my guardian's letter set itself over and over again all night at last we came into the narrow streets of deal 
and very gloomy they were upon a raw misty morning. The long flat beach, with its little irregular houses, wooden and brick, and its litter of capstans and great boats and sheds, and bare upright poles with tackle and blocks, and loose gravelly waste places overgrown with grass and weeds, wore as dull an appearance as any place I ever saw. The sea was heaving under a thick white fog, and nothing else was moving but a few early rope-makers, who, with the yarn twisted round their bodies, looked as if, tired of their present state of existence, they were spinning themselves into cordage. But when we got into a warm room, in an excellent hotel, and sat down, comfortably washed and dressed, to an early breakfast, for it was too late to think of going to bed, Deal began to look more cheerful. Our little room was like a ship's cabin, and that delighted Charlie very much. Then the fog began to rise like a curtain, and numbers of ships that we had had no idea were near appeared. I don't know how many sail the waiter told us were then lying in the downs. Some of these vessels were of grand size. One was a large Indiaman, just come home. And when the sun shone through the clouds, making silvery pools in the dark sea, the way in which these ships brightened and shadowed and changed amid a bustle of boats pulling off from the shore to them and from them to the shore, and a general life and motion in themselves, and everything around them was most beautiful. The large Indiaman was our great attraction, because she had come into the downs in the night. She was surrounded by boats, and we said how glad the people on board of her must be to come ashore. Charlie was curious, too, about the voyage, and about the heat in India, and the serpents and the tigers, and as she picked up such information much faster than grammar, I told her what I knew on these points. I told her, too, how people in such voyages were sometimes wrecked, and cast on rocks, where they were saved by the intrepidity and humanity of one man. And Charlie asking how that could be, I told her how we knew at home of such a case. I had thought of sending Richard a note saying I was there, but it seemed so much better to go to him without preparation. As he lived in barracks, I was a little doubtful whether this was feasible, but we went out to reconnoitre. Peeping in at the gate of the barrack-yard, we found everything very quiet at that time in the morning, and I asked a sergeant, standing on the guard-house steps, where he lived. He sent a man before to show me, who went up some bare stairs, and knocked with his knuckles to the door, and left us. "'Now, then,' cried Richard from within. So I left Charlie in the little passage, and going on to the half-open door, said, "'Can I come in, Richard? It's only Dame Durden.' He was writing at a table, with a great confusion of clothes, tin-cases, books, boots, brushes, and portmanteaus strewn all about the floor. He was only half-dressed, in plain clothes, I observed, not in uniform, and his hair was unbrushed, and he looked as wild as his room. All this I saw after he had heartily welcomed me, and I was seated near him, for he started upon hearing my voice, and caught me in his arms in a moment. Dear Richard, he was ever the same to me. Down, too, ah, poor, poor fellow! To the end he never received me but with something of his old, merry, boyish manner. "'Good heaven, my dear little woman,' said he, "'how do you come here? "'Who could have thought of seeing you? "'Nothing the matter. "'Ada is well.' "'Quite well. "'Lovelier than ever, Richard.' "'Ah,' he said, leaning back in his chair, "'my poor cousin, I was writing to you, Esther.' 
so worn and haggard as he looked, even in the fullness of his handsome youth, leaning back in his chair and crushing the closely written sheet of paper in his hand. "'Have you been at the trouble of writing all that, and I am not to read it, after all?' I asked. "'No, oh, my dear,' he returned with a hopeless gesture. "'You may read it in the whole room. It is all over here.' I mildly entreated him not to be despondent. I told him that I had heard by chance of his being in difficulty, and had come to consult with him what could best be done. "'Like you, Esther, but useless, and so not like you,' said he, with a melancholy smile. "'I am away on leave this day, should have been gone in another hour, and that is to smooth it over for my selling out. Well, let bygones be bygones.' So this calling follows the rest. I only want to have been in the church to have made the round of all the professions. "'Richard,' I urged, "'it is not so hopeless as that.' "'Esther,' he returned, "'it is indeed. I am just so near disgrace as that those who are put in authority over me, as the catechism goes, would far rather be without me than with me.' and they are right. Apart from debts and duns and all such drawbacks, I am not fit even for this employment. I have no care, no mind, no heart, no soul, but for one thing. Why, if this bubble hadn't broken now—he said, tearing the letter he had written into fragments, and moodily casting them away by driblets—how could I have gone abroad? I must have been ordered abroad, but how could I have gone? How could I, with my experience of that thing, trust even Bowles, unless I was at his back? I suppose he knew by my face what I was about to say, but he caught the hand I had laid upon his arm, and touched my own lips with it, to prevent me from going on. No, Dame Durden. Two subjects I forbid, must forbid. The first is John Jarndyce. The second, you know what— call it madness, and I tell you I can't help it now, and can't be sane. But it is no such thing. It is the one object I have to pursue. It is a pity I ever was prevailed upon to turn out of my road for any other. It would be wisdom to abandon it now, after all the time, anxiety, and pains I have bestowed upon it. Oh, yes, true wisdom. It would be very agreeable, too, to some people, but I never will.' He was in that mood in which I thought it best not to increase his determination, if anything could increase it, by opposing him. I took out Ada's letter, and put it in his hand. "'Am I to read it now?' he asked. As I told him yes, he laid it on the table, and resting his head upon his hand, began. He had not read far, when he rested his head upon his two hands, to hide his face from me. In a little while he rose as if the light were bad, and went to the window. He finished reading it there, with his back towards me, and after he had finished, and had folded it up, stood there for some minutes with the letter in his hand. When he came back to his chair, I saw tears in his eyes. "'Of course, Esther, you know what she says here.' He spoke in a softened voice, and kissed the letter as he asked me. "'Yes, Richard.' offers me he went on tapping his foot upon the floor 
the little inheritance she is certain of so soon, just as little and as much as I have wasted, and begs and prays me to take it, set myself right with it, and remain in the service. "'I know your welfare to be the dearest wish of her heart,' said I, "'and, oh, my dear Richard, Ada's is a noble heart.' "'I am sure it is. I—I I wish I was dead.' He went back to the window, and, laying his arm across it, leaned his head down on his arm. It greatly affected me to see him so, but I hoped he might become more yielding, and I remained silent. My experience was very limited. I was not at all prepared for his rousing himself out of this emotion to a new sense of injury. "'And this is the heart that the same John Jarndyce, who is not otherwise to be mentioned between us, stepped in to estrange from me,' said he indignantly. "'And the dear girl makes me this generous offer from under the same John Jarndyce's roof, and with the same John Jarndyce's gracious consent and connivance, I dare say is a new means of buying me off.' "'Richard!' I cried out, rising hastily. "'I will not hear you say such shameful words.' I was very angry with him indeed for the first time in my life, but it only lasted a moment— when I saw his worn young face looking at me as if he were sorry, I put my hand on his shoulder and said, "'If you please, my dear Richard, do not speak in such a tone to me. Consider.' He blamed himself exceedingly, and told me in the most generous manner that he had been very wrong, and that he begged my pardon a thousand times. At that I laughed, but trembled a little too, for I was rather fluttered after being so fiery. "'To accept this offer, my dear Esther,' said he, sitting down beside me and resuming our conversation, "'once more, pray, pray, forgive me. I am deeply grieved. To accept my dearest cousin's offer is, I need not say, impossible. Besides, I have letters and papers that I could show you which would convince you it is all over here.' I have done with the red coat, believe me. But it is some satisfaction in the midst of my troubles and perplexities to know that I am pressing Ada's interests in pressing my own. Bowles has his shoulder to the wheel, and he cannot help urging it on as much for her as for me, thank God. His sanguine hopes were rising within him and lighting up his features, but they made his face more sad to me than it had been before. No. "'No!' cried Richard, exultingly. "'If every farthing of Ada's little fortune were mine, no part of it should be spent in retaining me in what I am not fit for, can take no interest in, and am weary of. It should be devoted to what promises a better return, and should be used where she has a larger stake. Don't be uneasy for me. I shall now have only one thing on my mind, and Voles and I will work it.' I shall not be without means. Free of my commission, I shall be able to compound with some small usurers who will hear of nothing but their bond now, Voles says so. I should have a balance in my favour anyway, but that would swell it. Come, come, you shall carry a letter to Ada from me, Esther, and you must both of you be more hopeful of me, and not believe that I am quite cast away just yet, my dear. I will not repeat what I said to Richard, 
I know it was tiresome, and nobody is to suppose for a moment that it was at all wise. It only came from my heart. He heard it patiently and feelingly, but I saw that on the two subjects he had reserved, it was at present hopeless to make any representation to him. I saw, too, and had experienced in this very interview, the sense of my guardian's remark, that it was even more mischievous to use persuasion with him than to leave him as he was. Therefore I was driven at last to asking Richard if he would mind convincing me that it really was all over there, as he had said, and that it was not his mere impression. He showed me without hesitation a correspondence, making it quite plain that his retirement was arranged. I found, from what he told me, that Mr. Vowles had copies of these papers, and had been in consultation with him throughout. Beyond ascertaining this, and having been the bearer of Ada's letter, and being, as I was going to be, Richard's companion back to London, I had done no good by coming down. Admitting this to myself with a reluctant heart, I said I would return to the hotel, and wait until he joined me there. So he threw a cloak over his shoulders, and saw me to the gate, and Charlie and I went back along the beach. There was a concourse of people in one spot, surrounding some naval officers who were landing from a boat, and pressing about them with unusual interest. I said to Charlie, this would be one of the great Indian man's boats now, and we stopped to look. The gentlemen came slowly up from the waterside, speaking good-humouredly to each other, and to the people around, and glancing about them as if they were glad to be in England again. "'Charlie! Charlie!' said I. "'Come away!' And I hurried on so swiftly that my little maid was surprised. It was not until we were shut up in our cabin-room, and I had had time to take breath, that I began to think why I had made such haste. In one of the sunburnt faces I had recognised Mr. Allan Woodcourt, and I had been afraid of his recognising me. I had been unwilling that he should see my altered looks. I had been taken by surprise, and my courage had quite failed me. But I knew this would not do, and I now said to myself, "'My dear, there is no reason, there is, and there can be no reason at all, why it should be worse for you now than it ever has been. What you were last month, you are to-day. You are no worse, you are no better.' This is not your resolution. Call it up, Esther, call it up. I was in a great tremble, with running, and at first was quite unable to calm myself, but I got better, and I was very glad to know it. The party came to the hotel. I heard them speaking on the staircase. I was sure it was the same gentleman, because I knew their voices again. I mean, I knew Mr. Woodcourt's. It would still have been a great relief to me to have gone away, without making myself known, but I was determined not to do so. No, my dear, no, 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 no. I untied my bonnet, and put my veil half up, I, I think I mean half down, but it matters very little, and wrote on one of my cards that I happened to be there with Mr. Richard Carstone, and I sent it in to Mr. Woodcourt. He came immediately. I told him I was rejoiced to be by chance among the first to welcome him home to England, and I saw that he was very sorry for me. "'You have been in shipwreck and peril since you left us, Mr. Woodcourt,' said I, "'but we can hardly call that a misfortune which enabled you to be so useful and so brave. We read of it with the truest interest. It first came to my knowledge through your old patient, 
poor Miss Flight, when I was recovering from my severe illness. "'Ah, little Miss Flight,' he said, "'she lives the same life yet?' "'Just the same. I was so comfortable with myself now, as not to mind the veil, and to be able to put it aside. Her gratitude to you, Mr. Woodcourt, is delightful. She is a most affectionate creature, as I have reason to say.' "'You, uh, you have found her so?' he returned. I, 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 "'I am glad of that.' He was so very sorry for me that he could hardly speak. "'I assure you,' said I, "'that I was deeply touched by her sympathy and pleasure at the time I have referred to.' "'I was grieved to hear that you had been very ill.' "'I was very ill.' "'But uh, you have quite recovered?' "'I have quite recovered my health and my cheerfulness,' said I. "'You know how good my guardian is, and what a happy life we lead, and I have everything to be thankful for, and nothing in the world to desire.' I felt as if he had greater commiseration for me than I had ever had for myself. It inspired me with new fortitude and new calmness to find that it was I who was under the necessity of reassuring him. I spoke to him of his voyage out and home, and of his future plans, and of his probable return to India. He said that was very doubtful. He had not found himself more favoured by fortune there than here. He had gone out a poor ship's surgeon, and had come home nothing better. While we were talking, and when I was glad to believe that I had alleviated, if I may use such a term, the shock he had had in seeing me, Richard came in. He had heard downstairs who was with me, and they met with cordial pleasure. I saw that after their first greetings were over, and when they spoke of Richard's career, Mr. Woodcourt had a perception that all was not going well with him. He frequently glanced at his face, as if there were something in it that gave him pain, and more than once he looked towards me as though he sought to ascertain whether I knew what the truth was. Yet Richard was in one of his sanguine states, and in good spirits and was thoroughly pleased to see Mr. Woodcourt again, whom he had always liked. Richard proposed that we all should go to London together, but Mr. Woodcourt, having to remain by his ship a little longer, could not join us. He dined with us, however, at an early hour, and became so much more like what he used to be, that I was still more at peace to think I had been able to soften his regrets. Yet his mind was not relieved of Richard. When the coach was almost ready, and Richard ran down to look after his luggage, he spoke to me about him. I was not sure that I had a right to lay his whole story open, but I referred in a few words to his estrangement from Mr. Jarndyce, and to his being entangled in the ill-fated chancery suit. Mr. Woodcourt listened with interest, and expressed his regret. "'I saw you observe him rather closely,' said I. "'Do you think him so changed?' "'He is changed,' he returned shaking his head. I felt the blood rush into my face for the first time, but it was only an instantaneous emotion. I turned my head aside, and it was gone. "'It is not,' said Mr. Woodcourt, "'his being so much younger or older or thinner or fatter or paler or ruddier as there being upon his face such a singular expression. I never saw so remarkable a look in a young person.' One cannot say that it is all anxiety or all weariness, yet it is both, and like ungrown despair. "'You do not think he is ill?' said I. "'No. 
he looked robust in body. "'That he cannot be at peace in mind, we have too much reason to know,' I proceeded. "'Mr. Woodcourt, you are going to London?' "'Tomorrow or the next day.' "'There is nothing Richard wants so much as a friend. He always liked you. Pray see him when you get there. Pray help him sometimes, with your companionship, if you can. You do not know of what service it might be. You cannot think how Ada, and Mr. Jarndyce, and even I, how we should all thank you, Mr. Woodcourt. "'Miss Summerson,' he said, more moved than he had been from the first, "'before heaven I will be a true friend to him. I will accept him as a trust, and it shall be a sacred one.' "'God bless you,' said I, with my eyes filling fast, but I thought they might when it was not for myself. Ada loves him. We all love him, but Ada loves him as we cannot. I will tell her what you say. Thank you, and God bless you in her name. Richard came back as we finished exchanging these hurried words, and gave me his arm to take me to the coach. Woodcourt, he said, unconscious with what application, pray let us meet in London. Meet? returned the other. I have scarcely a friend there now but you. Where shall I find you? Why, I must get a lodging of some sort, said Richard, pondering. Say, at Vols's Simon's Inn. Good, without loss of time. They shook hands heartily. When I was seated in the coach, and Richard was yet standing in the street, Mr. Woodcourt laid his friendly hand on Richard's shoulder, and looked at me, I understood him, and waved mine in thanks. And in his last look as we drove away, I saw that he was very sorry for me. I was glad to see it. I felt for my old self, as the dead may feel, if they ever revisit these scenes. I was glad to be tenderly remembered, to be gently pitied, not to be quite forgotten. End of chapter 45 What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.